Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. One seemingly harmless minute in a backwoods country grocery store in rural Mississippi dramatically changed the course of Emmett Till's life, set it on a path to be destroyed, and with his destruction, set an entire nation's civil rights movement into motion. Emmett was just 14 years old, and on summer break before his eighth grade year, he came to Mississippi from Chicago to visit his family. Before he left, his mother had anxiously warned him that he would need to be careful in the still strictly segregated and racially hostile environment of the Deep South. And she was right to be scared. For just one minute, give or take a handful of seconds, on August 24th, 1955, Emmett Till was alone in a store with a white woman. What exactly happened inside that store will never be known. The story has changed over and over through the years, but the story initially told by Carolyn Bryant, the store owner who interacted with Emmett that day, led to his death. On August 28th, Carolyn's husband, Roy Bryant, and his half-brother, J.W. Millam, with an unknown number of accomplices, kidnapped Emmett Till from his uncle's home in the middle of the night. They drove him to a barn, attempted to beat him into submitting to what they decided his place was, and when the results of the beating didn't satisfy them, they took him to the banks of the Tallahatchie River, where he was shot in the head. The men then tied a cotton gin fan to his neck with barbed wire and coolly threw his lifeless body into the river. Emmett's corpse was recovered three days later. His mother, Mammy Till Mobley, chose to have an open casket funeral. She wanted the whole country to see the cruelty that had been inflicted upon her son, the whole world. It's possible that up to 100,000 people viewed Emmett's body and millions more saw a picture of his mutilated body when it was published in magazines and newspapers. And while almost no one realized it at the time, the rage over seeing what was done to him and why it was done to him sparked a revolution. Mammy wanted justice for the murder of her son, which was labeled a lynching by the NAACP and many other groups and individuals as well. Anyone with a working brain inside their head, basically. Less than a month later, her son's killers went to trial. Carolyn Bryant testified that she was scared to death by Emmett's conduct inside the store, claiming that he grabbed her, asked her on a date, and used 
quote, an unprintable word. Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam would be acquitted of murder and kidnapping by an all-white jury. Protected from further prosecution, they then did a magazine interview where they fully confessed to kidnapping, beating, and murdering Emmett Till. This injustice and the cruel murder of a young boy sparked a national outrage. The lynching of Emmett Till is considered by many to mark the beginning of the civil rights movement in America. Today, we'll discuss the life of Emmett Till, the impact of his murder, the pursuit of justice in the decades that followed, and a whole lot more. In another historical, let us not shy away from any uncomfortable truths. Why the hell wasn't I taught this back when I was in school? It's such an incredibly powerful story edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> Happy Monday, Meat Sex. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suck Master, patron of the theater, bikini burger lover, and you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, Hail Nimrod, Hail Safina, praise be to Good Boy Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. I still have a bit of that damn head cold from last week's recording, uh, but voice feeling uh, better than last week. A uh, couple quick things here, a couple fun things, uh, then we'll get into the story. Quick reminder that the 2023 Bad Magic Street team is off and running. Recording this in advance, hopefully some of the 500 packs of 10 stickers each are still in stock. Actually, you know what? I hope they're not. But uh, but if they are, they're still free. Uh, you only pay for shipping. Stick them all over the place where you think uh, best spreads the suck. Post your picks. Get creative on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Hashtag the picks and or vids with Bad Magic Street Team so we can find them and maybe you can win some free merch. On or after October 2nd at noon Pacific time, we'll look up posts based on the hashtag at Bad Magic Street Team and or excuse me hashtag Bad Magic Street Team and the winner will get a $200 Bad Magic Merch.com store credit and everyone who does this uh, thank you thank you for helping uh, help me spread the word about our shows in a old school way also a reminder to mark your calendar for something else free Sunday August 27th 4pm on YouTube the debut of my newest stand up special trying to get better and again releasing for free on YouTube as uh, most comics do these days, I'll be in the comment feed for the initial release, and then, of course, it'll live there for hopefully a long, long, long time. Subscribe to the Bad Magic Productions YouTube channel, and then watch along with me. Uh, please share it if you like it. You know what? Fuck it. Share it if you don't like it. If you fucking hate it, still share it. Uh, again, Sunday, August 27th, 4 p.m. Pacific time on the Bad Magic Productions YouTube channel, the new comedy special, Trying to Get Better. I'm very proud of it. Uh, if you don't like it, you should fucking never follow my stand-up again, because it's the best I can do. Uh, if you do like it, go to dancomes.tv. Get tickets to upcoming shows of uh, all new material in Richmond, uh, Burlington, Buffalo, New York. Uh, it's Buffalo, New York. I don't know why I felt to add the state, but not with the others. Chicago, uh, Providence, Lexington, Virginia Beach, and Honolulu. And one more thing. Sonny Hollister here to get me text. Cheesecake Factory Store Detective. I'd like to tell you about my exclusive Cheesecake Detective collection. Manager Greg Charles of Cheesecake Factory 404 keeps throwing official Cheesecake Detective merch out of the store because apparently I have never officially represented the company. Clearly, I need to bring you an official collection directly. Introducing the Detective Sonny Hollister approved Cheesecake Detective mini collection featuring two tea variants and a frosted glass mug. And yes, it does kind of look like the souvenir cups Cheesecake Factory uses when you order any celebration cheesecake or a specialty dessert. But not exactly. I know how to catch bad guys. And I know how to avoid copyright infringement. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com right now. And stay sunny, everyone.
Glad he could show up for a second. Uh, okay, and now let's get to our topic that our space listeners on Patreon voted into existence here on the show, and I'm glad they did. I missed this one growing up. I missed a lot of stuff growing up. Uh, <laughs> uh, Riggins, maybe it's better now. When I was growing up, didn't have the best educational system. Uh, and then after school, never to my recollection, uh, never heard about it prior to seeing it on the voting board on the uh, Times of Cap. Sometimes research on these topics, and, and I still do a ton of the research on every single topic, you know, adding to the research done by one of our awesome researchers. And sometimes it is definitely more captivating than it is on other weeks. And this week, so captivating. Uh, the story so naturally powerful, tragic, and compelling. You know, it's fucking, it's painful, it's horrific. And I wish, like with most of our stories, you know, that it never would have happened. But also the story sparked a lot of intense conversations between Lindsay and I, between uh, me and my kids, Kyder Monroe. It sparked, you know, conversations for families ever since it has happened. And it, it really moved me. I hope it does the same for you. I hope it fucking infuriates you. Here we go. So how are we dissecting this heavy shit today? Well, we will first start with an overview of the Mississippi Delta region where Emmett Till was murdered to show how his murder was not an anomaly. It was a logical conclusion of deeply held ignorant beliefs that have been pervasive in the area for multiple generations. Following that, I'll share how the press portrayed Emmett versus his white accusers. After that, we'll uh, cover a full timeline of Emmett's short life, his killer's trial, and the decades that followed. And throughout all of it, you know, I'll find as many places as possible to make fun of fuckheads, uh, show up in the story and look for other areas of mockery to keep this from just being a, you know, some kind of torture porn tear fest. Uh, from 1877 to 1950, there were over 4,000 racial terror lynchings in the U.S. According to a report by the Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit founded in 1989 that provides legal representation for those who've been wrongfully convicted or face abuse in prison. Uh, one of the charities that Bad Magic is uh, donated to uh, back in 2020, this one, over 4,000 terror lynchings. That's a lot of fucking people spending their final moments in abject horror over a bunch of ignorant bullshit. Uh, the victims of these racial terror lynchings were primarily black people. And during this period, 600 black victims were lynched in the state of Mississippi. The most out of any state in the U.S. Roughly 15% of all racial lynchings recorded by this study in a 73-year period took place in one of 50 states. In 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till was murdered by white men in what was arguably the most racist region of the most racist state in America at the time, the Mississippi Delta. According to a 2006 FBI investigative report into Emmett's lynching at the time of his murder, the Mississippi Delta was a place where racial attitudes now considered abhorrent were the norm for a significant segment of society. Hardcore racism was a way of life. Like, like hardcore out of like a, a, a bad movie that seems over the top. Like, oh, come on. People like that don't really exist, do they? Yeah, they do. Uh, the events of Emmett Till's kidnapping and murder took place in the three counties in Mississippi Delta. LaFleur, Sunflower, and Tallahatchie. Emmett was kidnapped in LaFleur County, taken to Sunflower County, and then found dead on the border of Tallahatchie and LaFleur counties. In 1955, the three counties each had a majority black population per that same FBI report. The land consisted mainly of large plantations that were still worked by black tenant farmers. The population of LaFleur County was around 51,000 and 68% of that population was non-white. And almost all of them were real poor, especially the black residents. The median annual per capita income was 918 bucks. The average annual income of black families specifically 
$595 annually, $595 a fucking year. Uh, inflation calculators don't ever perfectly translate yesterday's dollars into today's, but they, they give us a rough feel for how far the money went. And five ninety five a year in 1955 corresponds to about 6700 a year today, which broken down into somebody working 40 hours a week, uh, 52 weeks a year, that equates to about $3.22 an hour. So we're not talking about poverty. We're talking about deep, deep poverty. People, working people, living in what most of us would call a fucking shed, wearing rags, basically uh, never really having quite enough to eat, zero medical care, zero dental care, you know, no money for any kind of personal care. Take out the racism and life is still just fucking brutal. Uh, Check out how this compares to the rest of the country. In 1955, the U.S. average per capita income was 4,400. In Mississippi, it was 946. Uh, The number's so low, I thought it must be wrong. And I dove into a whole bunch of other stats for a bunch of other years. I was like, there's no fucking way that Mississippi's average per capita income was over four times less than the national average. Uh, No, it's true. Mississippi has made a a lot of improvement in recent decades, actually come up a a bunch, but it still lags behind the entire rest of the nation. The average current annual per capita income in the U.S. is 35,672. Uh, Per capita income is the average income computed for every man, woman, and child in a household. Or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, I said that. Uh, The highest state or territory was the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., with 59,808. Highest actual state, Massachusetts, 46,241. And then the lowest state, Mississippi, 25,301. Mississippi, still the poorest state in the nation. The gap isn't as wide as it used to be, but it's still at the bottom. A few more stats before moving on. Uh, The average adult in LaFleur County had completed only 6.4 years of school back in 1955, while black adults uh, averaged two years less, 4.3 years of education. And the other counties mirrored what was going on in LaFleur. The population of Sunflower County, uh, around 56,000, 68%. Population is uh, non-white. Median annual per capita income, 744 bucks. My God. Average annual income for black families, 544 so less than the floor. Education rates, a bit lower as well. Average adult, 5.7 years of school. Average black adult, 4.1 years of school. Finally, Tallahatchie County, population of around 30,000, 63% of the population non-white. Median annual per capita individual income, uh, 607 bucks. Average annual income for black families, 462, $462. Average adult completed 5.7 years of school, Average black adult, 3.9, lowest of the three counties. So the majority of people in these counties had far less than a junior high education. An FBI report states, the FBI has done numerous reports on all this over the decades, by the way, that in 1955, there were definitive socioeconomic strata within Mississippi Delta society. Black persons were considered to be at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. The next level above blacks was the white sharecropper, followed by the white business person who catered to the black community, All other segments of white society, farmers, store owners who catered to the white community, business leaders, etc., were perceived to be socioeconomically superior to these two segments of the white community. And according to the FBI, there was an unwritten de facto separate legal system that served as the foundation for jurisprudence between blacks and whites, which was called, quote, Negro justice. Essentially, a social caste system existed where there were a lot of unwritten social rules. There were a ton back in the 50s in Mississippi. A lot of rules people uh, held very near and dear. Status. It's always meant so much to so many of us meet sex, and it's almost uh, always meant a lot more to some of us than it has to others. 
And down in these counties in the 1950s, for many, social status was very fucking important. And the consequences for not staying, quote, in your place were very severe. And at the bottom of this caste system, right, black residents, then just barely above them, poor white people who worked with black people in some capacity. And the villains of today's story are, are those white people, just above the white sharecropper, the, the, the white business owner who sold primarily to a, a black customer base, right? People seen as less than by other white people with better jobs, more education, more money, people who desperately wanted to make sure that no black people tried to jump over them in social status. People literally willing to kill to make sure that didn't happen so they could keep telling themselves that while uh, most people looked down on them, you know, they were still, quote, better than somebody. Uh, Alongside status, economics and education loom large in this story, right? You have very poor, very uneducated white people who felt racially superior to even more poor, more uneducated black people who felt like they also had the right to impose whatever type of backwoods justice upon those people they deemed uh, right and proper. Education and economic opportunity. Provide good helpings of both to a population and you're probably going to have a healthy, largely happy population. Deprive a population of both and you, you're going to end up with shit like the lynching of Emmett Till. Mississippi was racially segregated in the 50s, uh, like most of the South. There were separate schools, public bathroom facilities, drinking fountains and restaurants. There were laws forbidding interracial marriage, cohabitation, and also sexual conduct between races. Black people uh, were culturally expected to refer to white people as ma'am or sir. White people did not offer the same respect in return. Uh, Black people culturally tended to avoid contradicting white people, uh, did not offer to shake their hands first, kept their eyes down to the ground, didn't speak unless spoken to by white people. It was uh, also common and expected to avoid any skin contact between the races. Damn. So slavery had ended almost 100 years earlier, but socially black people in Mississippi were still enslaved in so many ways. Chained to... uh, dehumanizing cultural expectations, expectations that still carried harsh punishments like fatal lynchings if they were not met. I mean, imagine living like that right now. Whatever race you are, it doesn't fucking matter. Truly doesn't matter. Just imagine having to uh, literally look down at the fucking ground whenever you are in the presence of the member of the the in race, the race deemed by the mainstream culture to be superior. Imagine mentally making sure that that you don't touch them you're always anxious and scared around them. You always have to address them as sir or ma'am, right? You don't speak to them unless they speak to you. If they insult you, you just take it. You apologize, even when you know you've done nothing wrong. You apologize because you're scared of what will happen to you if you anger them, what might happen to those around you. Just imagine what that would do to your fucking self-esteem, to your soul. It would crush mine. I imagine I would constantly be filled with so much indignant rage. It would feel like at any moment, I might literally just explode. I mean, I struggle every day with fucking feelings of rage now. and No one's persecuting me. I just hate most of the society. <laughs> I, uh, I, try, I try to see the good in people, and there is a lot of good in people, but fuck, I hate people as well. Uh, I fantasize pretty much daily about doing shit like pushing some motherfucker down a flight of stairs. Just because I don't like the way they uh, you know, look at me or just carry themselves in general. <laughs> I just determine for whatever reason, like, nah, they're a fucking prick. Uh, in the environment of today's tale, I, I feel like I would either just have to die inside Uh, you know, just no longer be anything resembling who I am now, or probably be a mass shooter. Just walk into the town square and open fire on all the peckerwood motherfuckers who keep trying to make me feel less than, right? Just keep shooting until somebody uh, takes me out or I've taken them all out. (laughs) Just being fucking brutally honest. Uh, The FBI report continues with, in the Mississippi Delta, a de facto institution of separate justice was in place for whites and blacks. The white population could rely on the normal vestments of government and call on the local sheriff's department for assistance in criminal matters. This was not the case for blacks. 
The black population was dealt with in a manner which some historians have called, quote, Negro law, a system where the gravity of the crime was determined in large part by its impact on whites. Based on interviews with white and black people, the FBI reported that if a white person had an issue with a black person, they would speak to that person's, quote, landowner, which was the person who owned the farm they worked on. The landowner took care of the problem by paying off debts or other nonviolent methods, but also sometimes did use violent methods. Also sometimes beat, whipped, uh, used other forceful methods against black people. And this is going on in the 50s, the 1950s, not the 1850s. Right? This was done with crimes, you know, issues amongst black people. Like, what the fuck? Almost 100 years since the abolition of slavery. But still in Mississippi, some poor black people are living damn near exactly like they had when they were plantation slaves over a century earlier. Like, whipping still the norm. Like, I knew shit was racially fucked up in the 1950s in the Deep South, but I, I don't think I knew it was this fucked up in certain places. On May 17th, 1954, the Supreme Court issued its ruling in the Brown versus Board Education case declaring racial segregation in public schools unconstitutional. The summer before Emmett's lynching, right, racial tension in Mississippi is heating up. It's increasing with this ruling. In response to Brown versus Board, the editor of Jackson, Mississippi's Daily News wrote, Human blood may stain southern soil in many places because of this decision, but the dark red stains of that blood will be on the marble steps of the United States Supreme Court building. White and Negro children in the same schools will lead to miscegenation. It means racial strife of the bitterest sort. Mississippi cannot and will not try to abide by this decision. Uh, anyone else have zero fucking clue what miscegenation meant? I had to look up that Scrabble word. Uh, it means, quote, marriage or cohabitation between two people from different racial groups, especially in the U.S., between a black person and a white person, resulting in the conception of a mixed-race child. What a fucking crazy thing to worry about. Take anything you've learned, take just, you know, uh, fucking any emotion out of it and just think you got, you got person and you got person, <laughs> right? They might have different fucking colors, which by the way, we're all a little bit different in color, right? You fucking two white people, is the shade always identical? Of course not. It's just this fucking spectrum. But we decide like once you cross, I don't know, this fucking threshold on the spectrum, I, I cannot, I will not, I must not abide. By my penis entering your vagina or vice versa. You know, it's fucking, it's fucking insane. That's the kind of shit that makes me think like, you know what? I just hope a virus takes all of us out, right? The world will be so much fucking better with just no people on it. Um, where does that come from, right? It has to come from insecurity, right? Insecure white men worried that some black man's going to end up with a woman that they wanted. Also insecure white women worried that some black woman's going to take their man, right? Talk about seeing the glass half empty. Look at all that another way, the right way. Mixing up races, the fucking best. Hey, Lucifina. All the dicks are in place. So are all the sweet, sweet pussies. Why have it any other way? Right? A dick and puss fucking smorgasbord. All colors. That's clearly the best way to live. I mean, what straight white man in his right fucking mind would want someone who looks like Jennifer Hudson to be off the table? I will not. <laughs> I picture some like enormous too obese fucking sweaty all fucking lumpy headed I will not defile myself with those titties in my face get the fuck out of here what straight white woman would want Idris Elba to be off limits you know what what fucking gay bi straight whatever the fuck person of any race or sexual persuasion wants Idris Elba off the table can we all agree that Idris transcends the confines of race gender and sexual orientation like I think he's a dude you can have sex with Idris Elba and you can still be straight. 
But I digress. Uh, just such stupid shit, right, to believe. If you just think about it, just even just like a little bit. Uh, back to Mississippi freaking out over the possibility of desegregation. The governor and other officials uh, spoke out against the Brown versus Board ruling and the movement to organize private groups to promote continued segregation and to fight integration gained momentum in the state. And, of course, gained a lot of fucking momentum along the rural, incredibly uneducated counties in today's tale. On July 11th, 1954, the so-called Indianola Citizens Council was formed to promote segregation in Indianola, Mississippi. They'll serve as a model for other pro-segregationist groups in the rest of the state. A few months later, October 12th, 1954, the Association of Citizens Councils of Mississippi, the ACCM, is formed. Their 1955 annual report, excuse me, uh, states or stated that the organization had 60,000 active members in 253 councils throughout the state. Councils claim to promote segregation through legal means, but at least one of their flyers reflects the use of intimidation and the fact that the threat of violence was sanctioned by these groups. They could claim whatever the fuck they wanted to. Uh, All these groups are KKK adjacent at best, uh, KKK equivalent at worst. In 1963, Hugh Stephen Whitaker, an academic who wrote a case study in Southern Justice, the Emmett Till case, for his master thesis, interviewed the jurors in Emmett Till's murder trial when he was, uh, or when it was all over. And he learned that every single juror, without exception, every single one, was visited by members of the ACCM to make sure they voted, quote, the right way. Wink, wink. Sure would hate to burn a cross in your yard, buddy. She would hate it if you did the wrong thing and we had to, you know, make an example out of you and yours. That kind of shit. Uh, the 2006 FBI report summarizes the environment of the Mississippi Delta in the 1950s, stating the white citizens of Mississippi were bombarded daily with news surrounding the end of segregated schools, efforts by blacks to register to vote, and the heated calls for the defense of their segregated way of life. Senators, congressmen, the state assembly, the governor, and most public officials were calling on the population to defend the status quo, to defy the Supreme Court implementation ruling, oppose federal efforts to enforce segregated schools, and to continue poll practices which disenfranchise blacks. The fear that they would lose control of their way of life permeated the lower socioeconomic segments of the white community. This segment of the community in particular believed they had the most to lose if the black community truly became equal. Right? Small, scared people afraid of change, afraid of equality, afraid of losing their traditional way of life. Clearly, when Emmett Till came to Mississippi to visit family, he was entering an extremely fucking hostile environment. He was seen as a threat even though he was a young teen. He was viewed as a, as a future that so many of Mississippi's white folk so dreaded. A black man who did not think he needed to stay in his place. Someone who thought he was an equal. Now, let's discuss how the press portrayed Emmett Till versus his accuser, Carolyn Bryant. Uh, Local news outlets tried to villainize Emmett during his trial, of course, from the very beginning, make it seem like, uh, you know, he had it coming. White residents of Mississippi viewed black journalists from other parts of the country and white northern reporters as outside agitators. Just trying to cause trouble. The sheriff... And what a fucking piece of work the sheriff was. We'll get to know him later. Uh, Made it clear he was not going to allow black reporters in the courtroom at trial. Of course, he never used the word black to describe them. But then those journalists got in uh, anyway when some race trader, uppity northern white journalist pushed for it. Uh, But they had to stay in one corner of the courtroom and had no place to sit. Uh, Corner or not, the fact that they even made it in was very upsetting for many locals. Right? They're coming for us. They're going to be our equals. They're coming for our women, our children. And then soon, we will all be the white slaves of the black man. They will do to us what we have done to them. Be afraid. 
Uh, numerous scholars have noted how traditional gender roles and white supremacy worked together in the South around the time of Emmett's murder and trial to lead to the non-guilty verdict for his killers. Angie Maxwell, a political science professor at the University of Arkansas, told CNN that white women were morally untouchable in the Jim Crow South. And even though this fear was based uh, not on evidence, uh, it was thought that the white women uh, needed constant protection from black men. I don't want to derail the episode by getting deep into the weeds with it, but there are countless examples of cases of black girls and women being raped or gang raped by white men in the Jim Crow and pre-civil rights era South. Uh, Lots of fucking brutal, very hard to read documented examples. Almost zero examples of black men raping white women. A lot of accusations, very little proof. It's also fucking crazy. It's also backwards, right? This is white aggressors playing uh, the victim. It's as insane as somebody you've never met kicking in your door beating the shit out of you in your house, then calling the police who come to arrest you in your own house while the person who just broke in and beat you cries about being so scared of you, right? That they had to fucking beat you. And then the police bring you up on assault charges. Like this is all that insane. Uh, Maxwell said that uh, the white women's role in maintaining white supremacy has been downplayed in history because they were not the direct perpetrators of racial violence, but that their role was significant. Right? So they might not have swung uh, the fist, cracked the whip, or pulled the trigger, but they knew what they were doing when they sounded the alarm. They knew what it would lead to. Uh, as an example of how they were protected, an arrest warrant will be issued for Carolyn Bryant for kidnapping Emmett Till on August 29th, 1955. Uh, LaFleur County Sheriff George Smith, not the hated sheriff, he's going to be a different guy, uh, said on September 4th, as quoted by the Clarion Ledger, we aren't going to bother the women, or excuse me, we aren't going to bother the woman. She's got two small boys to take care of. <laughs> Talk about preferential treatment. I know, I know. It appears as if she has helped kidnap a young black man who did nothing uh, but turn up dead, and that is unfortunate. But the fact of the matter is, she has some youngins that need proper rearing, some beautiful white children. So we're not going to disrupt the nuclear family unit of this fine white lady folk. <laughs> Just, I don't know. Just fucking do what you want, I guess. You just, you're above the law. Uh, black mothers not given nearly the same respect or, you know, status as white mothers, of course. Uh, when Mammy Till Mobley, Emmett's mother, said she was positive that the body found in the river was her son, uh, the fuckhead sheriff leading the investigation said, the whole thing looks like a deal made up by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. <laughs> what? This fucking dead body? They just, what, they just fucking invented it? I don't know. Uh, nice uh, use of empathy there. In, uh, in 2022, Peniel Joseph, history professor, Barbara Jordan, chair in ethics and political values and founding director of the Center of the Study for the Study of Race and Democracy at the LG. Here's a long fucking title. It's about 75 words. Uh, and democracy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Called Emmett Till. Man, before I get there, it's fucking communists and fucking academics. Can they have longer titles sometimes? Uh, Anyway, uh, called Emmett Till the first martyr of the modern civil rights era. And Joseph compared Carolyn Bryant, later Carolyn Bryant Donham, to modern day Karens, which he defined as white women who weaponize their privilege against black people when they feel disturbed in some way. Fucking Karens. The world has always had them and they always fucking suck. Uh, Joseph wrote, in this sense, Donham is the civil rights movement's ultimate Karen. (laughs) White woman whose actions did not just embarrass threaten or humiliate black lives, her actions helped to extinguish the bright light that was Till. Emmett's murder often cited, as I've said, is the very beginning of the modern civil rights movement, according to a page about Emmett Till from the Library of Congress website. The newspaper coverage and murder trial galvanized 
a generation of young African-Americans to join the civil rights movement out of fear that such an incident could happen to friends, family, or even themselves. Many uh, many interviewees, sorry, this cold is not helping the mushmouth, in the Civil Rights History Project, remember how this case deeply affected their lives. Joyce Ladner, a civil rights activist from Mississippi who was a young girl when Emmett was killed, coined the term Emmett Till Generation, which describes black baby boomers in the South who were inspired to join the civil rights movement to demand equal treatment. Emmett's death was the spark that led to the fire. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a sermon days after the acquittal titled Pride Versus Humility, The Parable of the Pharisee and the Publican, where he said, the white men who lynch Negroes worship Christ. That jury in Mississippi, which a few days ago in the Emmett Till case, freed two white men from what might be considered one of the most brutal and inhuman crimes of the 20th century, worships Christ. The perpetrators of many of the greatest evils in our society worship Christ. This trouble is that all people like the Pharisee go to church regularly. They pay their tithes and offerings and observe religiously the various ceremonial requirements. The trouble with these people, however, is that they worship Christ emotionally and not morally. They cast his ethical and moral insights behind the gushing smoke of emotional adoration and ceremonial piety. Uh, Former Suck Subject King episode 42 back in 2017. Man, dude had a fucking way with words. I like this excerpt. Worshiping emotionally, but not morally. Right? Going to church, singing the songs, saying amen after a meal. Uh, What the fuck does any of that really mean? If in between Sundays, you're going to kill a teen like Emmett Till or maybe uh, for maybe flirting with a white woman or at least be okay with that happening. What does it mean if you acquit obvious murderers because they're white and the victim is black? Well, then it doesn't mean shit. Uh, King also gave his famous I Have a Dream speech on the anniversary of Emmett's murder. Not a coincidence. Another civil rights leader, Rosa Parks, heard Mississippi activist Dr. T.R.M. Howard talk about Emmett Till at a rally on November 27th, 1955. The story stuck with her, inspired her. Uh, When the Reverend Jesse Jackson asked why uh, she refused to move from her seat, she answered, I thought of Emmett Till. And I couldn't go back. Hail Rosa Parks. Hail uh, Emmett Till and hail Nimrod. Uh, Emmett's mother, Mammy Till Mobley, often credited as an extremely important figure in the civil rights movement. After the trial, the NAACP helped her travel across the country to talk about her son. The organization gained an untold amount of new members and donations because of her. Christopher Benson, the journalist who co-wrote Mammy's autobiography, told Smithsonian Magazine, Mammy opened that casket and opened our eyes. We could never turn away again from our responsibility. Everyone had to be accountable. Everyone who had committed acts of racial violence, everyone who had stood by to let it happen, she made sure that for an entire nation, there no longer could be any innocent bystanders. Man, that's powerful shit. Could you be that strong if Emmett was your child? I hope I could, but I don't know that I could. Certainly hope I never find out. Uh, With all this context established, let's now begin the timeline of the life and murder of Emmett Till. Right after today's mid-ish show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. but What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. 
This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my better help therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. 
Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks, as always, for listening to those sponsors. Hope you were able to uh, save some money and get something great. And now let's really meet Emmett Till. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. July 25th, 1941, Emmett Lewis Till, born in Chicago, Illinois. He was the only child of a Lewis and Mammy Till. His mother, Mammy Carthen, was her maiden name, uh, born on November 23rd, 1921, near Webb, Mississippi. Her parents were John and Alma Carthen. She would change her name a couple times throughout her life from uh, Carthen to Till, then Till Brad, then to Till Bradley, then to Till Mobley. In January of 1924, Mammy's mother had moved to Argo, Illinois. Her father already there working at the Argo Corn Products Refining Company. Argo, a subdivision that was uh, annexed by Summit, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, a suburb of Chicago. Argo is still commonly used, but no longer the village's proper name. Uh, Mammy's family was part of the Great Migration of approximately 6 million black Americans who left the South from the 1910s to the 1970s. We've talked about that migration in a ton of episodes now. After moving, she still spent many of her summers visiting members of her family back in Mississippi. Mammy graduated from Argo Community High School June of 1940, just the fourth black graduate of that school. On October 14th of that year, she married 18-year-old Louis Till. Louis born February 7th, 1922. He was an orphan, grew up in New Madrid, Missouri. New Madrid, just like the one in Spain, but you know, but better, uh, newer. Uh, New Madrid, I, I, I've never been, but I was curious how it looked after this town has the same name as Madrid, Spain, which is like a fucking world-class city from what I hear and from what I've seen online. Uh, I did a lot of poking around and New Madrid, not, not the same as Madrid. I feel very confident saying it is a, uh, I would call it a total shithole. Around 2,700 people live there. And all of them, whether they realize it or not, are being punished to some degree. Uh, Spaniards settled uh, the area around 1780, and it looks like it's been going downhill pretty much ever since. Uh, historically, it's known for having had a lot of earthquakes, coal plant pollution, and lynchings. I looked to see what businesses are open there on Google Maps, and I, and I found this nightclub, Zoe's Nightclub. And when you click on it to see pictures of it, there's just pictures of a shitty yard with a bunch of dead grass, a few cars parked on the grass, and a shed with uh, one window that's boarded up. That's fucking sad nightclub. Uh, there is at least four cemeteries, so if nothing else, it's a good place to be buried. Uh, the two most rated restaurants seem to be a Pizza Hut and Casey's Pizza. And anyone living there, if you're listening to this, I just want to remind you that at any time, you could just start walking out of town. And then once you make it outside of New Madrid, you can just keep walking and you can just abandon your old life. Try, try and make it to, to old Madrid in Spain, right? That Madrid, again, looks fucking amazing. Or, or if you can't make it there, try for St. Louis or Kansas City or, or Springfield, Missouri, uh, or just the river. Just walk into the river. And you know what? If you make it to the other side, great. And if you don't, maybe still better than New Madrid. Uh, anyway, now that I've lost all my New Madrid listeners, Louis Till. He also worked at the Argo Corn Company. Uh, Mammy's parents disapproved of Lewis and thought he was too sophisticated for her. Mammy ended the relationship at her mother's insistence, but Lewis was persistent and they got back together. And then their son Emmett was born about nine months later. 1942, when little Emmett was either uh, one or not quite one, Lewis and Mammy separated. Uh, 
Lewis cheated on her and uh, Mammy left him. Strong woman, Lewis was furious and attacked Mammy. He uh, choked her until she nearly lost consciousness and then she threw scalding water at him. And after fighting him off, obtained a restraining order against Lewis. After violating this order multiple times, a judge forced him to choose between prison and serving in the army. Uh, he chose the army. 1943, he enlisted and served during World War II. Then in 1945, when Emma was four, Mammy learned that Lewis died while serving in Europe. She was not given a full report of his death. We'll talk about that much later. One of the few possessions she uh, received was his signet ring with his initials on it. 1946, when Emma was five, he became sick with polio. It's crazy to think about how fucking recent polio was affecting people. I think it still affects people uh, in certain parts of the world. I, I don't have that. Uh, I haven't looked that up for this episode. So maybe I'm wrong, but I'm 99% sure it does. Uh, he recovered, but the disease left him with a slight stutter for the rest of his life and a bit of a limp. Uh, Mammy and Emmett lived in her mom's house in Chicago, despite raising her son as a single mom when Emmett's, uh, or with Emmett's father out of the picture. Um, she described her life as close to perfect as you could get. Emmett lived in a middle-class neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. PBS described it as a mecca in which black-owned establishments thrived. There were, you know, black insurance companies, tailors, pharmacists, barbers, salons, nightclubs that were fucking a lot better than that one in New Madrid. And it was pride. Emmett Till was, of course, painfully aware of racism existing in America and around Chicago, but where he grew up, uh, and this is important, black men held their heads up high, considered themselves equal to white men. He was not raised to think of himself as less than. That was uh, foreign to him. Uh, very different than if he had been raised in Mississippi. Emmett attended McCosh Elementary School, which was an all-black school. Emmett had a lot of friends, was always into something, according to his mom. Mammy believed he would someday make a good lawyer or politician. Emmett's friends and family called him Bobo, sometimes referred to in sources with the nickname of Bo. Reminds me of my daughter Monroe, Momo, or Mo. Uh, and Bo was said to be a thoughtful and considerate child. Mammy often worked more than 12 hours a day. She was a clerk for the Air Force and was in charge of confidential files. With mom away at work, Emmett had to take on a lot of responsibility at home. Mammy later said about her son, Emmett had all the house responsibility. I mean, everything was really on his shoulders and Emmett took it upon himself. He told me if I would work and make the money, he would take care of everything else. He cleaned and he cooked quite a bit and he even took over the laundry. Well, despite a lot of responsibility on his young shoulders overall, Emma was said uh, to be a very happy child. Emmett's cousin, Wheeler Parker, said about him, he loved to tell jokes. He would pay people to tell him jokes. I love that. I love that he would literally give his buddy some coin just to hear a good joke. Uh, by the time Emmett became a teenager, rock and roll was popular, right? It's a new music genre. Like most teens, he fucking liked it. Liked to fucking rock. Uh, Richard Hurd, one of Emmett's classmates, and the man who will fill our Nimrod Decree dick quota for this week, told PBS... There was a good time because where we grew up, a lot of guys listened to the Moonglows. Or no, I'm sorry. That was a good time because where we grew up, a lot of guys listened to the Moonglows, the Flamingos, and the Spaniels. We tried to imitate them in our little singing groups. It was a lot of fun. The Moonglows and the Spaniels. Literally never heard of those groups before. Uh, the Spaniels formed in 1952, mostly known song-wise for their hit, Good Night, Sweetheart, Good Night. They've been called the first successful Midwestern R&B group hailing out of Gary, Indiana. And some historians think they pioneered having one guy be the front man of a vocal group. Uh, the Moonglows, formed in Cleveland in 1951, had a song sincerely go to number one on the Billboard R&B chart and were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000. And all those, uh, all of these groups I just uh, mentioned earlier were all black bands. And also Dick Hurd, Dick Quest, a few weeks ago. And now Dick Hurd this week. Uh, Dick Hurd makes me picture what looks like a big herd of buffalo. 
on the Great Plains of America, like back in the 1850s. But instead of buffalo, uh, there are a bunch of dicks <laughs> with buffalo legs. Just a couple hundred dicks, just a fucking herd of dicks roaming the plain, grazing, looking for uh, a puss herd to have some kind of plains orgy with, or maybe looking for a herd of buttholes, maybe a herd of pusses and buttholes. Anyone else's brain go there? Anyone else's brain there now? And last thing, take away just one letter and Emmett's buddy would have literally been named Dickhead. Anyway, Dick Hurd, Emmett's buddy, fellow R&B and early rock and roll music lover, recalled going to Emmett's house one day in 1955 to eat bologna sandwiches. What if they had American cheese on them? Oh man, I love those as a kid. Anyone else eat a lot of bologna and craft singles on white bread with a little Miracle Whip? Uh, they were excited to see each other that fall when school started again. It was supposed to be their eighth grade year, he told PBS. Emmett was a funny guy all the time. He had a suitcase of jokes that he liked to tell. He loved to make people laugh. He was a chubby kid. Most of the guys were skinny, but he didn't let that stand in his way. He made a lot of friends at Makash Grammar School, where we went to school. And now let's look at what, uh, you know, brought joke and rock and roll loving Emmett to Mississippi that fateful summer. In August of 1955, Emmett's great uncle, 64-year-old Mose Wright, came to Chicago from Mississippi to visit family for a funeral. Mose went by the nickname of Preacher to most people, or Preacher Wright. Some sources also list his name as uh, being Moses. Mose was taking Emmett's cousin, Wheeler Parker, back with him to Mississippi to spend some time with family, and Emmett wanted to come with them. Mammy tried to talk her son Emmett out of, uh, you know, going down there, wanted her to, uh, or wanted him to come with her to go on a vacation to Omaha, Nebraska instead, told him he could even learn how to drive on the trip, but Emmett was determined to go spend time with some cousins that he hadn't seen in years. Emmett had been to Mississippi three times before as a baby, as a toddler, and then at the age of nine. Emmett's Mississippi kin, the Wrights, lived approximately uh, uh, just a couple miles east of Money, Mississippi, along the Dark Ferry Road on the Grover C. Frederick Farm. While there's less than 100 residents in LaFleur County's unincorporated community of Money, Mississippi now, there was about 400 in the area in the early 50s. Uh, the name Money comes from Hernando Money, a U.S. senator. He was in the Senate from 1897 to 1911. And the area was developed for cotton cultivation sometime in the 19th century. Got a post office in 1901. Uh, one source described money in the 1950s as a post office, filling station, and three stores clustered around a school and a gin and set in the vast, lonely cotton patch that is the Mississippi Delta. Looking at pictures of uh, Money Mississippi now, uh, Money Mississippi makes New Madrid, Missouri look like Madrid, Spain. If you live in Money and you move to literally any other place in America, worst case, where you now live is equally shitty to where you used to live. I do not think it's possible to live in a worse place. It looks like a place where you're considered rich if you have indoor plumbing. I'm not joking. It's beyond depressing. Uh, and I can't imagine what it was like in the 50s. Now that I've lost uh, all my money, Mississippi listeners, <laughs> I'm never going to fucking do a show in Money, Mississippi or New Madrid, Missouri now. Uh, Mammy didn't want Emmett to go to Mississippi. Uh, she told him about the uh, unspoken rules he'd have to follow. She wrote in her autobiography, Death of Innocence, the story of the hate crime that changed America. Everything Emmett had come to believe all his life had to be unlearned as he prepared for the trip. She recalled Emmett telling her, oh, mom, I can't be that bad. And she told him, it's worse than that. Mammy later wrote, how do you give a crash course in hatred to a boy who has only ever known love? According to Time Magazine, Mammy warned Emmett to be very careful to humble himself to the extent of getting down on his knees. Damn. I think, I think true humility is hard for just about any 14-year-old to learn, right? You're just starting to come into your own, just starting to become a, a man in Emmett's case. 
And now you're being told to make sure you present yourself as less than. Make yourself small so you don't threaten truly small people. No wonder Mammy didn't want him to go, right? She knew it was going to be bad. Had she known exactly how bad, obviously she would have forbidden him from going. Uh, But she knew it was likely going to be a a hard, hard trip for her son. Shortly before Emmett's visit in May and early August 1955, two black men were murdered in Mississippi. Both murders remain unsolved. Uh, On May 7th, 1955, Willie George Washington Lee, a black minister from Belzona, Mississippi, was shot to death. Belzona, just under an hour from money, 44 miles away. No one ever arrested or charged with his death. Reverend George Lee was one of the first black people to qualify as a voter in Humphreys County. Shortly before his murder, he'd recently led a drive for registration for more black voters in opposition to those citizens' councils. He died after his car crashed into a house in Belzona. Authorities initially said he died from a car crash. But his family called in a black doctor and a black dentist who found metal particles in his jaw and powder burns. Witnesses also reported hearing a shot before the car crash. One witness said she thought she heard a domestic quarrel in a shot looked out her door and saw a car coming down the sidewalk towards her house. Witnesses told Dr. C.C. Battle, who was one of the experts brought in by the family to look into the Reverend's death, that a car pulled up near Lee's vehicle and then shot at him. The FBI lab also later found pieces of metal in Lee's face and determined they were similar in weight and composition to number three buckshot. So some motherfucker blasted him with a shotgun for trying to get his people to vote. And I'm strongly assuming there were eyewitnesses to his death who were just too scared to testify or... Just didn't want to testify because, you know, they were cool with what happened. On May 22nd, Roy Wilkins, executive secretary of the NAACP, said at a meeting that an atmosphere of racial hate created by the citizens' councils caused the murder of George Lee. Wilkins said, whenever you have an organization made up of so-called respectable people, then somebody gets the idea that violence is okay. Wilkins, uh, executive secretary, again, in the NAACP, said that George Lee, excuse me, was uh, shot because he thought he ought to vote just like other Americans. Someone threatened him and told him he should withdraw his name from the registration list. He refused to do this because he was an American, and Americans have the right to vote. The meeting where all this was said was called by Dr. A.H. McCoy, president of the Mississippi branch of the NAACP, to protest how authorities were handling this investigation. Then on August 13th, 1955, just 15 days before Emmett's murder, a 63-year-old farmer, World War II veteran, and another black voting advocate, Lamar Smith, was killed in broad fucking daylight on the courthouse lawn in Brookhaven, Mississippi, 160 miles from money, less than a three-hour drive. Plenty of eyewitnesses. Three white men were arrested but not indicted. Smith had been active in getting black people to vote absentee ballots in the first primary. No one could find any witnesses to admit they saw the shooting, which took place on the north side of the courthouse around 10 a.m. Noah Smith, a white farmer, did surrender himself to the sheriff on the 14th. Two other men later arrested, but no one ever indicted again. These men dared to openly fight for equality in Mississippi in 1955 and killed for doing so. And their murders are clearly not taken seriously by law enforcement. And you know, that's, that sends a strong fucking message to the community. 1955 in Mississippi, if you dare to defy the status quo as a black man, there were consequences and they were very severe. Mammy had good fucking reason to be worried about her son. Mississippi was clearly not a safe place for any black person, let alone some kid from the North who did not understand all the unspoken rules. On August 19th, 1955, the day before he left, Mammy gave Emmett his father's signet ring. She put it, you know, he put it on, of course, and this is uh, significant as far as evidence later. I imagine she hoped it would bring him some good luck. Obviously, it didn't. Following day, August 20th, Mammy dropped Emmett off at the 63rd Street train station in Chicago, and that would be the last time she would see her son alive. Emmett arrived in Money, Mississippi the next day, August 21st. Supposed to stay there for two weeks. 
During the first three days of his family visit, Emmett spent time with his cousins, right? They spent their time picking cotton for work. Free time, they did things like shooting fireworks, swimming, talking about girls, other normal things that teenage boys do. Uh, three days after arriving in Mississippi on August 24th, 1955, Emmett Till, six other teenage boys and one girl stopped at Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market after spending the morning and afternoon picking cotton. Bryant's Grocery, owned by Roy and Carolyn Bryant, young white couple, the majority of their customers, black sharecroppers and their children. Right Before progressing further into the faithful uh, events of today's story, let's take a moment to get to know a few central figures in the Emmett Till case a bit better. Uh, Roy Bryant, born January 31st, 1931 in Charleston, Mississippi, 24 years old in 1955. Roy had served as a paratrooper in the army from 1953 to 1953. So a veteran of the Korean War, the son of Eula Bryant and uh, slash, well, Eula Bryant, maiden name Eula uh, Millam, grew up in a, or Millam, uh, grew up in a poor family, big poor family. His mother had 11 kids between two husbands. Roy worked part-time for his half-brother, uh, I said maiden name. I don't know why I fucking, whenever I fucking go <laughs> off my nose. Uh, Millam, that was uh, one of her married names. She was Eula Bryant with one husband, Eula Millam with another husband. It's not that complicated, but I was fucking babbling there. Uh, Roy worked part-time for his half-brother, John William J.W. Uh, Millam, J.W. Millam, who owned a trucking business. Uh, that little grocery store didn't pay all the bills. And, and it was a very little store. Looking at pics, to me, it looks to be about I don't know, half the size uh, of a typical 7-Eleven or other corner store today. Uh, J-Dub hired Roy to drive for him and deliver goods. Roy also had experience working in welding. His half-brother J-Dub Millen was born February 18th, 1919, served in the Army from 1941 to 1946, earned a Purple Heart in World War II. The Millens moved to Glendore, Mississippi in 1950, about 20 miles from money. And the Millens and the Bryants operated a, a number of stores that primarily catered to the black community. J-Dub owned a, a general store service station in Glendora, where he allegedly also sold moonshine. Millam had partial ownership in at least two other stores, one of which was the one owned by Roy Bryant. Hugh Stephen Whitaker interviewed individuals who knew Millam and uh, Bryant, and they were referred to as Peckerwoods, white trash, and other terms of disappro disapprobation. Uh, Peckerwood is slang <laughs> to describe a poor white person. More specifically, a Southern poor, uncultured white person. I know it's a hateful slur, but uh, as a white guy who didn't grow up in the South, but did grow up poor and uncultured, I've always found the term Peckerwood uh, hilarious. Uh, reminds me of uh, like the old Woody Woodpecker cartoons or something. Makes you picture a mashup of Woody Woodpecker and just some kind of good old boy uh, out of deliverance or something. Leslie Millam, another brother of Roy and J-Dub, managed a farm on the Clint Sheridan Plantation, located near Drew, Mississippi, in Sunflower County. Leslie was born in 1925. Uh, this guy, uh, this Peckerwood, was uh, 30 years old when all this shit goes down. Drew's about 30 miles from money, and this farm an important location in, uh, in the case. Roy's wife, uh, Peckerwood uh, Madge Carolyn Halloway, the Karen of our tale, was born on July 23rd. Uh, 1934, on a plantation near Kruger, Mississippi, just 21, Carolyn's father, likely another Peckerwood, uh, was a plantation manager and a prison guard. He died when she was a teenager, and her mother worked as a nurse after his death. She was living in Indianola, Mississippi. Carolyn was a, a poor Southern, Southern belle uh, of sorts, a Peckerwood belle. I'm going to use that word a lot. <laughs> Go forward. Um, it just cracks me up. Not Southern, but I feel like I can say as much as I want because I did grow up white, poor, and largely uncultured. Uh, Carolyn, even her name sounds almost like Karen. 
uh, won two beauty pageants in high school at the age of 16. She dropped out of school to elope with Roy and then a 21 or then a 20 year old army infantryman. She met him two years earlier at a party. According to Devery S. Anderson, author of Emmett Till, the murder that shocked the world and propelled the civil rights movement, Carolyn had always been attracted to bad boys. Carolyn and Roy had two young Peckerwoods, uh, Roy Jr. and Thomas Lamar. Uh, Carolyn and Roy were, like everyone else in the story, poor. These Peckerwoods had no car, lived in the back of their tiny-ass store with their two kids. Uh, when not working, Carolyn and Roy spent most of their time visiting family in the area, going to the local Baptist church, and on the rare occasion when they could borrow a car and get away uh, from the kids, they would typically go to a, uh, a drive-in movie. Can drive-in theaters please make a comeback, by the way? I never went to one growing up, but been to a few since, and there was something uh, really romantic and special about them. And also, as I record this, I feel like one of the only people on earth who hasn't seen either Oppenheimer or Barbie. Um, Carolyn worked uh, the store while Roy did extra jobs to make more money. On August 24th, 1955, Roy was hauling some shrimp for his Peckerwood brother, which is why Carolyn was working their Peckerwood store alone. The branch generally stayed open until 9 p.m. on weekdays, 11 p.m. on Saturdays, closed on Sundays. Carolyn refused to work the store alone in the evenings out of fear when Roy was gone. Every afternoon, one of her uh, Peckerwood sister-in-laws would come to stay with her until closing. Then they waited for one of their Peckerwood husbands to take them home, and Carolyn would be driven back the next day. Now that we have a feel for the normal day-to-day, of this little Peckerwood operation. Let's transition back to the events that allegedly transpired inside the grocery store that set a murder in motion and sparked a civil rights movement. After spending a few minutes out front, sometime between 7.30 and 8 p.m., Emmett and one other boy went into the store. They bought something. The boy bought something, not Emmett. And Emmett was left alone in the store with Carolyn Bryant then for roughly one minute, as I alluded to at the very beginning of the episode. No one except for Carolyn Bryant and Emmett Till will ever know exactly what truly happened inside the store for that minute. And only one of these people ever went on the record to say what happened. Emmett never got the chance to tell his side of the story. The following is Carolyn Bryant's account of events. One of her accounts, I should add, because her story will keep changing, which is, uh, you know, the sign of a liar. Uh, Originally for the trial, Carolyn said she was working alone in the store that evening. Her sister-in-law, Juanita Millam, was in the back with her children and Carolyn's children. She was close by, able to hear Carolyn call out for help if needed, but not actually uh, witnessed anything happening in the store. Juanita came from Glendora, again, about 20 miles away. She parked her vehicle in front of the store. Uh, J-Dub, Millam, uh, Juanita's husband, supposed to pick her and Carolyn up that night. The Peckerwood women had uh, Roy's 38 Colt pistol under the front seat if they needed it. Around 7.30 p.m., a group of eight young black people, seven boys and a girl, parks outside the store in a 1946 Ford. They were the sons, grandkids, and nephew of 64-year-old Mose Preacher Wright, and they ranged in age from 13 to 19. Emmett's group joined up with about uh, 12 other young people outside the store. When he got there, they'd come over to buy some candy. Emmett's cousin, Maurice Wright, had driven them. The Bryans kept uh, checkers out front. Some of the kids were playing checkers, and some of the kids were kidding about girls. Emmett apparently bragged about having a white girlfriend and showed off a picture he had in his wallet. And then one of the group dared Emmett to try to get a date. And again, this is just one version of the story. Try to get a date with the white woman uh, inside the store. So, you know, just kids fooling around, normal teenage and preteen stuff. Emmett went inside, asked for two cents worth of bubble gum. When Carolyn put the gum on the counter, he allegedly squeezed her hand and said, how about a date, baby? She jerked away, tried to go get Juanita, she would say. Emmett allegedly then jumped in front of her, possibly grabbed her waist and said, you needn't be afraid of me, baby. I've been with white girls before. Some sources say he allegedly used an unprintable word instead of been with. Maybe slept with, maybe fucked. 
I doubt it. One of Emmett's cousins now came in and took him outside. Carolyn went outside to grab that pistol. While outside, Emmett wolf-whistled at Carolyn before he and his cousins and friends drove off. Carolyn then told Juanita what happened. They decided not to tell J-Dub when he picked him up, knowing the repercussions, right? They knew it would lead to violence. The following detailed account comes now, or the, you know, this little portion of the account comes from uh, Simeon Wright from his 2010 book, Simeon's Story, an eyewitness account of the kidnapping of Emmett Till. Simeon, one of the kids present that day, 12 years old, a few months away from turning 13. He was one of Emmett's cousins. When he refers to Emmett, he will call him Bobo. And he said, as we reached Brian's store, we continued our usual small talk and banter. We were still excited about the day's events, happy to be in town together. We all got out of the car and were milling around in the front of the store when Wheeler went in to buy pop or candy. Bobo went in after him. Then Wheeler came out, leaving Bobo in there alone. Maurice immediately sent me into the store to be with Bobo. He was concerned about Bobo being in the store alone because of what had happened on the previous Sunday when Bobo had set his fireworks off inside the city limits. He just didn't know the Mississippi rules. And Maurice felt that sometimes, excuse me, and Maurice felt that someone should be with Bobo at all times. For less than a minute, he was in the store alone with Carolyn Bryant, the white woman working at the cash register. What he said, if anything, before I came in, I don't know. While I was in the store, Bobo did nothing inappropriate. He didn't grab Mrs. Bryant, nor did he put his arms around her. That was a story she later told to the court. A counter separated the customers from the store clerk. Bobo would have had to jump over it to get to Mrs. Bryant. Bobo didn't ask her for a date or call her baby. There was no lecherous conversation between them. And after a few minutes, he paid for his items and we left the store together. We had been outside the store only a few seconds when Mrs. Bryant came out behind us, heading straight to her car. As she walked, Bobo whistled at her. I think he wanted to get a laugh out of us or something. He was always joking around. And it was hard to tell when he was serious. It was a loud wolf whistle. A big city just... And it caught us all by surprise. We all looked at each other, realizing that Bobo had violated a long-standing unwritten law, a social taboo about conduct between blacks and whites in the South. Suddenly, we felt we were in danger, and we stared at each other, all with the same expression of fear and panic. Like a group of boys who had thrown a rock through somebody's window, we ran to the car. Bobo, with a slight limp from the polio he'd contracted as a child, ran along with us, but not as panic-stricken as we were. After seeing our fright, it did slowly dawn on him that he had done something wrong. I didn't even fucking know. Also glad I'm not doing this uh, episode on acid so I can whistle. Uh, Maurice Wright told the UPI in a report published in the, on September 1st, 1955, that Emmett went into the store and asked for some bubble and left after telling the women goodbye. Outside, Emmett gave a wolf call. I told Emmett to be careful of what he had said in the store. And what if that's all he did? Whistle. Maybe flirted a little inside the store but never touched her and then paid for that shit with his life. Even if he did put his hands on her, at most, maybe that deserves banishment from the store and a, hey kid, don't be putting your hands on my wife or anyone else who doesn't want you, you know, to be putting their hands on them. And, and that would be the case if he's black or white. Talk about the punishment not fitting the crime, if there was even a crime, which as we go forward becomes increasingly doubtful, I will say. I really think that uh, Carolyn Bryant was full of fucking shit. Uh, this incident, undoubtedly exaggerated, completely blown out of proportion by the local rumor mill, was reportedly now the talk of the area. On August 26, two days after Emmett touched or didn't touch Carolyn Bryant, when her husband Roy comes back from hauling some scripts from New Orleans to Brownsville, Texas, a black customer at the store tells him what had happened and said a black teenager visiting from Chicago was a kid who allegedly harassed Carolyn. Why the fuck? What are you telling that? I don't know, maybe this customer didn't want the wrong person taking the heat or something. 
Roy then quickly asked Carolyn if she wanted to tell him anything. She said no, which angered him. He demanded to know what happened. And that was when Carolyn told him, you know, this version of events, which she would then repeat at trial. You know, Emmett grabbed her. Uh, he scared her. And here we fucking go. Next day, August 27th, 1955, plans are being made by Roy and others to kidnap Emmett Till to, quote, teach him a lesson. That same day, Emmett, oblivious to how much trouble he's in, writes a letter to his mom in which he says, I'm having a fine time. Around 10.30 p.m. that night, J-Dub Millam comes to the store. Roy tells him that he planned to whip the slur omitted. That evening, Roy and Carolyn Bryant, J-Dub Millam, and Johnny Washington, a black man who did odd jobs for Roy, all headed out together in a truck to look for Emmett, even though they didn't actually know his name at that time. Well, in some versions, they know his name. Some versions, they don't. Uh, in this version, they said they saw a black teenager walking home. Bryant ordered Washington to throw him into the back of the truck. He did as asked. Then Carolyn came out to the truck to tell Bryant that he was not the right person. So Bryant now ordered Johnny Washington to throw this kid out of the back of the truck. He does so literally throwing the poor kid so hard that he lands on his head and loses his front fucking teeth. Poor kid literally had done nothing to anybody, just fucking walking home. Now, would these guys be charged with violently assaulting this kid? No, of course not. Uh, then at this point, Brian and Millam learn that the person they're looking for is staying at the home of Preacher, a.k.a. Moe's Wright. Some version of the story, they they knew where he was before they even got out in the truck and were heading to Moe's Wright's house from the very beginning. Uh, so after, in this version, doing a bit more planning, perhaps uh, grabbing a bite to eat, maybe having a few drinks, they drive over to uh, Preacher's home. At 2.30 in the morning, August 28th, 1955, Millam, uh, Bryant, likely two other people, make it to Preacher's house. They find Emmett, abduct him from his uncle's home. Shit, of course, gets real fucking ugly real fucking quick. Inside the home at the time of Emmett's kidnapping were Mose and Elizabeth Wright, right? The couple, their three sons, Emmett, uh, his cousin Wheeler, and Mose Wright's grandson. Emmett and his cousins were home after going out drinking, looking for girls in Greenwood about 10 miles away. They were asleep when someone called out Mose Wright's nickname, a preacher. A uh, preacher went to the door, saw Roy, Roy Bryant, who identified himself, said he wanted to talk to, quote, a fat boy from Chicago. Bryant was standing with J-Dub Millam uh, and a black man who was hiding his face, but who would later admit his identity to be Otha Johnson. Uh, when Mose would not tell them where Emmett was, the man just barged in, started looking around, helping themselves. They searched the beds in the house and they found Emmett. J-Dub shined a flashlight in Emmett's face and asked, you the slur omitted that did the talking down at money? Emmett supposedly answered with one word, yeah. Millam responded, don't say yeah to me, slur omitted. I'll blow your head off. Get your clothes on. Moe's right now begged them not to take Emmett anywhere. Emmett's cousin Maurice Wright later told a reporter for the local newspaper, the Greenwood Commonwealth, a paper that's been around since 1896, how his father pleaded with the men not to take him away, saying, just take him out in the yard and whip him, and I'll be satisfied. For fuck's sake. Uh, Roy uh, now seemed hesitant to take Emmett anywhere, but J-Dub insisted on going through with whatever they had planned. They warned the rights they would be killed if they told anyone that these guys had come to their house and then they led Emmett to their vehicle outside. Uh, Mose was standing on the porch. It was dark out. He couldn't see much at this point. Mose heard one of the men ask uh, whether Emmett was the right one. A voice, possibly a Peckerwood woman's voice, said he was. Uh, no one knows with certainty if this was Carolyn Bryant, but it's believed to be Carolyn. She would deny, though, being there during the abduction. Maybe she wasn't. Maybe she lied because of how ashamed she was to be involved in all this. Uh, again, exact events over the next several uh, hours, not confirmed. Generally accepted that Bryant and Millam did bring Emmett to Carolyn to be identified shortly after they abducted him, if she wasn't there already. Uh, according to Bryant and Millam's later confession, these Peckerwoods intended to, quote, just whip him and scare some sense into him. 
That's a quote. You know, just whip. As if that's not a big fucking deal. We didn't mean no one no harm, no how. We just want to take that boy out of his bed and just uh and just whip him a bit. Just a just a gentle whipping to uh gently remind him to behave himself. Uh, and then they knew they had the right kid, or after they knew they had the right kid, they drove around looking for a steep cliff. They couldn't find it, so they drove to a barn on Leslie Millam's property, uh, his farm located in Drew, Mississippi. Young local man named Willie Reed would later testify that he saw a truck park in front of the barn on this farm with four white men in the cab, three black men standing in the back, and a black boy seated in the bed of the truck. So there's more people in this version. That changes in version to how many people who were a part of this is uh, not known as history has gone on, uh, recently it seems most people believe there was quite a few people involved in this. Maybe a dozen. Uh, minutes later, he heard hollering and whipping coming from the barn. He said in later interviews, uh, Reed identified the four men who entered the barn as Roy Bryant, J.W. Millam, Levi Too Tight Collins, who was a truck driver for Millam, and another black man. I fucking love that name. Too Tight. Uh, possible that Emmett was uh, killed inside the barn. Bryant and Millam gave differing accounts of events. Bryant Millam said that Emmett was defiant even after he was pistol whipped. They reported that Emmett said, you bastards, I'm not afraid of you. I'm as good as you are. I've had white women. Did he say that? I don't know about that. Uh, after leaving the farm, the individuals in the truck briefly stopped at Millam's grocery store in uh, Glendora. A witness said he saw blood running out of the bed of the truck and pooling on the ground. Holy shit. When someone pointed that out to Millam, he said he killed a deer. When he was told it wasn't deer season, he uh, pulled back the tarp on the bed of the truck and allegedly revealed Emmett's dead body and said, this is what happens to smart slur omitted. J.W. Millam claimed that he shot Emmett in the head on the banks of the Tallahatchie River. But this could have been a story to protect his brother Leslie, who was facing prosecution for something else already. Uh, Bryant Millam then drove to the Tallahatchie River, threw Emmett's body into it. Before they did so, they stopped at uh, the progressive ginning company to steal a fan to weigh down the body, hoping to hide the evidence, at least physical evidence, of what they'd done. They tied the fan to Emmett's neck with barbed wire, rolled his body in the river. In total, the killers traveled between 60 and 150 miles across three counties during all of this. That same morning, Moe's Wright contacts the LaFleur County Sheriff about his nephew's abduction. Emmett's cousin, Simeon Wright, wrote about what he witnessed that night in his book, Simeon's Story. When my father opened the door, he saw two white men stand on the porch. One of them, J.W. Millam, we would learn later, was tall, thick-set, and balding. He had a gun in one hand and a flashlight in the other. The second man was almost as tall, but not as heavy. He was the one who had spoken Roy Bryant. A third man stood behind Bryant, hiding his face from dad. Dad believed he was a black man, someone who knew us. The white men entered the house to our front guest room where Wheeler and Maurice were sleeping. Dad woke Wheeler up first. Melum told dad that Wheeler was not the boy he was looking for. He was looking for the fat boy from Chicago. Then I heard loud talking in my bedroom. In my half-conscious state, I had no idea what was going on. Was I dreaming or was it a nightmare? Why were these four white men in our bedroom at this hour? I rubbed my eyes and then shielded them, trying to see beyond the glare of the flashlight. The balding man ordered me to go back to sleep. Dad had to shake Bobo for quite a while to wake him up. When he finally awoke, the balding man told Bobo to get up and put his clothes on. It was then that I realized they had come to take him away. It wasn't clear to me what was going on and why they wanted just him. At first, I thought they had come to send him back to Chicago, but that didn't make sense at all. I was lying there, frozen stiff and not moving, when my mother rushed into the room. She began pleading with the men to not take Bobo. I could hear the fear in her voice. She broke into a mixture of pleas and tears as she practically prayed for Bobo, asking the men not to harm him. The men ignored her, urging Bobo to hurry up and get dressed. He was still somewhat groggy and rubbing his eyes, but he quickly obeyed. My mother then offered them some money not to take Bobo away. 
I was now fully awake, but still not moving. It was now crystal clear to me that these men were up to no good. They'd come for Bobo, and no amount of begging, pleading, or payment was going to stop them. Although Dad had two shotguns in his closet, the 12-gauge and a 410, he never tried to get them. If Dad had made a break for his guns, none of us would be alive today. I believe Miller and Brian were prepared to kill us all. It's at the slightest provocation. I'm glad that Dad do, didn't do anything to put us all in danger. Suddenly, the same panic I had felt after Bobo had whistled at Mrs. Bryant returned, and it was all I could do to stop trembling with fear, realizing that Bobo was not only in trouble, but in grave danger. My fear soon escalated into terror, and I was still frozen stiff in my bed, unable to move or to say anything. My mother's pleas continued as the men pushed to now dress Bobo from the room. Bobo left the room without saying one word. There was no way I could have done that. Everyone along Dark Fear Road would have heard my screams. And Dark Fear Road was literally the name uh, of the roads the Wrights lived on, by the way. Man, just point that out since uh, it, it can come across as, you know, dramatic, some kind of uh, Hollywood embellishment. Uh, Simeon continued, At the time, I didn't know what had happened next, but according to my dad, uh, the men took Bobo out to a car or truck that was waiting in the darkness. One of the men asked someone inside the vehicle if this was the right boy, and dad said he heard a woman's voice respond that it was. Then the men drove off with Bobo toward money. Man, imagine, imagine that shit happening to your child. Imagine over a fucking wolf whistle, a cat call, over maybe flirting, maybe a fucking joke, just a little, <laughs> someone coming into your fucking house in the middle of the night, right, while armed, ready to kill every member of your family if you dare disrespect him and the thugs he's brought with him and they just fucking take your nephew out of bed. And you know, at the very least, he's going to be whipped within an inch of his life. And there isn't shit you can do about it. Even if you grab your gun and you kill Roy Bryant and every member of his little fucking lynch mob, you and at least all the male members of your household that night will end up at the end of a hangman's rope. Right? That was the reality for this family. In the, in the United States, the supposed land of the free, 10 years after Allied forces beat Hitler's Nazis, 10 years after all kind of, uh, you know, America's the best, we're number one, victory parades. What a brutal slap in the fucking face to so many of this nation's citizens. Many who also fought the Nazis, right? Many of the black men from this area, veterans of World War II, and then coming back to this shit. Man, what a reminder that taking down a racist megalomaniac across the Atlantic didn't do much to affect racism back home. We're such a fucking weird species. August 29th, 1955, Roy Bryant, J-Dub Millam, arrested on kidnapping charges in LaFleur County, Mississippi. Uh, held without bond in Greenwood. Carolyn was supposed to have been arrested, but you know, she had to her fucking Peckerwood kids look after. So they just decided not to arrest her, right? That doesn't feel right. Do what you want. Uh, LaFleur County Sheriff George W. Smith, not the sheriff I hate, uh, said Emmett's whereabouts were still the $64 question. I'm kind of scared there's been foul play. We'll meet the motherfucker I hate pretty soon. Uh, Roy Bryant claimed uh, they had released Emmett. Sheriff Smith said his investigation led him to the following conclusions according to a 1955 Greenwood Commonwealth article. One of a group of Negro youths entered Bryant's store at Money and made some ugly remarks to Bryant's wife. Early yesterday, a car containing three white men went to the home of Mose Wright, Negro, a short way out of Money, and asked if a boy from Chicago was here, Wright is Till's uncle. Two of the men entered the house and came out with Till. Wright asked where they were taking the boy, and the men replied, nowhere if he's not the right one. Wright said he heard the men ask a woman in the car if Till was the right boy, and when she said yes, Till was placed in the car, and the men drove off. Meanwhile, 
Emmett's family in Chicago has now received news he has been kidnapped. Mammy and her family stayed at her mother's house in the days before Emmett was found. She could not uh, get information from anyone in Mississippi. She started calling papers in Chicago to tell them what she knew. Mammy's mother, Sorrow, uh, told her what very likely happened to Emmett, though. She said she, quote, began to realize that she had already given up hope. Mama had lived in Mississippi. Mama knew what it meant when white men came in the middle of the night in Mississippi. My God. August 29th, Mammy had a meeting with the Chicago NAACP, which helped get the story out of Emmett's disappearance uh, out to a national level. The mayor of Chicago and the governor of Illinois, to their credit, two white dudes in 1955, soon joined in the efforts to, uh, you know, get to the bottom of what actually happened to Emmett. Carolyn Bryant gave her first statement to authorities about all this. August 30th, 1955, her initial statement before the trial was that Emmett had insulted her. Uh, she did not say at this point that he grabbed her or insinuate uh, that he uh, attempted, to, attempted to rape her. Following day, just three days after he went missing on August 31st, 1955, Emmett Till's dead and badly beaten body found in the Tallahatchie River. A young boy who was fishing saw a pair of knees sticking out of the water. Uh, Tallahatchie County Sheriff H.C. Strider, this guy is the fuckhead I despise, uh, notified about the discovery. He called the LaFleur County Sheriff's Office to make a report. Emmett was badly disfigured. Body was swollen. Most of his teeth were missing. One ear was fucking gone. And one of his eyes was hanging out of its socket. Before he was shot, he was beaten so fucking bad, he very likely would have died anyway. Had he lived, he would have been horribly uh, disfigured. These motherfuckers beat the hell out of a 14-year-old child, some chubby kid with a limp from a bout with polio. Moe's preacher Wright identified the body as Emmett Till. How traumatic that must have been. An undertaker's assistant gave him the signet ring that once belonged to his father, right? The evidence that, yes, this is Emmett. Uh, Wright later turned it in to LaFleur County Deputy Sheriff John Ed Cothran. After examining the body, LaFleur County Sheriff George W. Smith said Bryant Millam would be charged with murder. Greenwood Commonwealth reported on September 1st. Sheriff Strider of Tallahatchie County said a warrant charging kidnapping had been issued for Mrs. Bryant, the storekeeper's wife, but that she could not be found at her home. Ah, he knew where she was. Again, they used to want to arrest her. Uh, the Greenwood Commonwealth also reported that Emmett's mother said the entire state of Mississippi is going to pay for this. Cannot fucking imagine the hurt and rage she must have felt. Woo! Hope I never have to know that pain personally. Uh, September 1st, 1955, Mississippi Governor Hugh White orders that J.W. Millam and Roy Bryant be fully prosecuted. White issued the statement... I have called upon the district attorneys of Tallahatchie and LaFleur counties to make a complete investigation and fully prosecute the guilty Peckerwoods. Mississippi deplores such conduct on the part of any of its citizens and certainly cannot condone it. The Peckerwoods charged with murder are in jail. I have every reason to believe that the court will do their duty in prosecution. Mississippi does not condone such conduct. I am so goddamn tired of these no-good, beady-eyed, snaggletooth, needle-dick fucking Peckerwoods dragging down the reputation of my fine state. Fuck these Peckerwood motherfuckers. Uh, he may not have said all the Peckerwood stuff, but he said the rest. Uh, the NAACP also on September 1st uh, issued a press release uh, that stated lynching of schoolboy laid to white supremacy drive in Mississippi. New York, September 1st, is the article here. Following the lynching of a Missis uh, in Mississippi of a 14-year-old Negro boy whose body was found yesterday, the top officer of the NAACP charged that it would appear from this lynching that the state of Mississippi has decided to maintain white supremacy by murdering children. In a statement issued yesterday, Roy Wilkins, the executive secretary of the NAACP, added, the killers of the boy felt free to lynch him because there is in the entire state no restraining influence of decency. 
Mr. Wilkins simultaneously dispatched a telegram to the Honorable Hugh White, governor of Mississippi, asserting, All decent citizens throughout the nation call upon you to use all the powers of your office to see to it that the lynchers of 14-year-old Emmett Lewis Till are brought to justice. We cannot believe that responsible officials in the state of Mississippi condone the murdering of children on any provocation. A reply received from Governor White at NAACP uh, headquarters here today said, in part, Parties charged with murder are in jail, and I have every reason to believe the courts will do their duty in prosecution. Mississippi does not condone such conduct. The youthful lynch victim who was visiting an uncle in Money, Mississippi, while on vacation from his native city of Chicago, was kidnapped from his uncle's residence on August 27th by two white men and a woman. Roy Bryant of Money and his half-brother, J-Dub Millam of Glendora, Mississippi, admitted to kidnapping the boy but insisted they released him unharmed. The two men arrested for kidnapping now are being held on a murder charge. The woman in the case, Mrs. Bryant, has disappeared. She didn't. A warrant charging kidnapping has been issued against her. It was never served. Uh, the body of the schoolboy was found in the Tallahatchie River near Greenwood, Mississippi, with a bullet through the head. The boy's head also bore the marks of a beating with a heavy instrument. Cause for the lynching is said to be Mrs. Bryant's offense because the 14-year-old lad whistled at her. In Chicago, where the victim's mother lives, the local NAACP branch telegraphed President Eisenhower and Attorney General Herbert Bronwell for a federal investigation of the crime. Uh, the Jackson News, or Jackson Daily News, described the murder as a brutal, senseless crime, but also said the NAACP was trying to arouse hatred and fear by calling the murder a lynching. Yeah, what the fuck else would you call it? Uh, the definition of a lynching is the public killing of an individual who has not received any due process. On September 2nd, 1955, Mammy Till arrived at the Central Terminal in Chicago to receive her son Emmett's casket. Man, how her heart must have ached. When Mammy saw Emmett's remains arrive at the train station, she literally collapsed to the ground and cried out, Lord, take my soul. Woo-wee. Uh, Mammy had to fight to have Emmett's body return to Chicago and to view his body. Uh, the sheriff returned his body on the condition that the casket never be opened. Fucking asshole. Like he had any business telling her fuck all about what she should do with her son's remains. Carolyn Bryant had an interview with defense lawyers on September 2nd. Uh, wouldn't be uncovered by the FBI until 2004. And she said, when I went to take the money, he grabbed my hand. She's talking about Emmett, of course, and said, how about a date? And I walked away from him and he said, what's the matter, baby? Can't you take it? He went out the door and said goodbye. And I went out to the car and got the pistol. And when I came back, he whistled at me. At this time, Roy's family took her to come live with them. She would later claim they were isolating her because they were afraid she would say something they didn't want her to say. Yeah, probably because her fucking story kept changing. Uh, Emmett's funeral took place September 3rd at Roberts Temple Church of God on South, South State Street in Chicago. Uh, Mammy chose to have an open casket funeral, as we've mentioned, uh, to, quote, let the world see what has happened because there is no way I could describe this. And I needed somebody to help me tell what it was like. Mammy had Emmett dressed in a suit and put photos of him inside the casket, photos of what he looked like before they did what they did to him. She later wrote in her autobiography, people would not be able to visualize what had happened unless they were allowed to see the results of what had happened. They had to see what I had seen. The whole nation had to bear witness to this. Man, good for her. What a fucking strong meat sack. Man, hail Mammy Till. Woo! Can't imagine an estimated 10,000 to 100,000 people came to the funeral home to see Emmett's body. A lot of sources say 10 to 50,000, but a few do say up to 100. Uh, his burial was postponed until the 6th to allow people more time to view the body. 
according to the 1992 book Race by uh, 1992 book Race by Lewis Studs Turkle, a historian who investigated the case at Emmett Till. It is difficult to measure just how profound an effect the public viewing of Till's body created, but without question, it moved black America in a way the Supreme Court ruling on school desegregation could not match. Contributions to the NAACP's fight fund, the war chest to help victims of racial attacks, reach record levels. Uh, and so, while people at the time could not have known it, the civil rights movement in America had just been born. In Mississippi, this time, all five lawyers from the town of Sumner, Tallahatchie County, uh, agreed to defend Bryant and Millam. Says a lot about the local culture. All the lawyers were like, nah, we want to get you guys off. Uh, many Mississippians were offended and angry by the coverage of Emmett's murder and the fact that it was described again as a lynching. Historian Hugh Whitaker said that these remarks caused the local power structure to dig in and support fellow Peckerwoods, Bryant and Millam. Right? Cognitive dissonance at its finest. Ignore all the horrific shit in this case that uh, makes you look bad. True horrific shit. And instead mentally frame it as if you are the one who is under attack. Right? Falsely being framed as a bunch of no good, ignorant, racist fucks. Another example of the aggressor playing the victim. Nobody likes being called a racist. Well, almost nobody. But you know who really doesn't like being called a racist? Uh, Racists. Kind of like how no one hates being called stupid more than a fucking idiot. It always stings a little more. When a part of you knows that the accusation has a lot, of, a lot of truth in it. One Sumner lawyer would later acknowledge that he only agreed to represent the men after Mississippi began to be run down. Well, maybe Mississippi needed to be run down here. Uh, Sheriff H.G. Strider now fucking weirdly said he was not convinced that the body found in the river was Emmett Till. Strider said he thinks that uh, Emmett's still alive. Sheriff's statement was printed in the Memphis Commercial Appeal on September 4th, 1955. Strider said... The body we took from the river looked more like that of a grown man instead of a young boy. It was also more decomposed than it should have been after that short stay in the water. Even the boy's uncle wasn't sure the body was that of Emmett Till. Strider said the victim had probably been in the water four to five days. There was a large silver ring on the middle finger of his right hand, but Moe said he couldn't identify the ring and would have to talk to his boys to see if they could identify it. Yeah, but then they did, and they're like, yeah, that's Emmett's ring. Uh, however, Emmett's cousin in Chicago, Ray F. Moody, said, uh, you know, the family is convinced that the body's Emmett's. Mammy Bradley, the mom, right, said she is positive the body is Emmett. Uh, LaFleur County Sheriff George Smith told the paper the Strider's deduction was news to me. He said, I thought the body had been positively identified. One of my deputies took the ring and carried it to the boy's home where I understand it was identified as Till's ring. That's all I know about the identification. So what the fuck is Strider thinking here? Right? Not doing a lot there to counteract the negative depiction of Mississippi, this case is cousin. Uh, he says this after Emmett's uncle identifies his body, after he knows Emmett has been lynched, after Emmett's own mom identifies her baby and holds an open casket funeral for thousands to witness the violence inflicted upon her child. And uh, and this guy is like, <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, what if uh, on this here murder trial, uh, there ain't been no murder? How come no one is asking that that question? To take it further, uh, what if Emmett Till never did exist? No, how? What if he's how you say uh, a mirage? How, how's it coming? No one is asking that question now. Maybe some smarter person's like, hey, hey Sheriff Strider, uh, how about you step away from that reporter and come sit over here and uh, use these crayons to draw something special? How about you come eat this grilled cheese sandwich? We cut the crust off and everything for you, just like you like. Let the grown-ups maybe do the talking. Uh, actually, Strider is not uh, being dumb here like he appears. He's, he's horrible. He's not dumb. He's uh, doing this to greatly help the jury reach a not guilty verdict. He is giving them an easy moral out, which I will speak to more going forward. Emmett was buried September 6, 1955. That same day, Milliman Bryant were indicted for kidnapping and murder. 
Uh, both men plead not guilty. September 15th, 1955, Jet Magazine, a Chicago-based African-American magazine, still printed today, founded in 1951, published photos of Emmett's body, which caused outrage throughout the country. September 17th, a black newspaper, the Chicago Defender, also published pictures of Emmett's body. I couldn't help myself. Looked up uh, these pictures online, knowing I would never be able to unsee them. Uh, yeah, they are every bit as horrific as I imagined. And again, can't imagine seeing, uh, you know, what that uh, does to a parent, right? I literally might go fucking crazy if someone did that to my kid. It would be so tempting to load up my nine millimeters full of hollow points from my, uh, if shit goes off the rail stash and fucking kill the men who did that, or at least die trying. Uh, Simeon Booker, not to be confused with Emmett's cousin, Simeon Wright, was assigned to cover the case for, J- uh, for Jet. Booker and photographer David Jackson attended the funeral. Jackson took the pictures of Emmett's body in the coffin. Booker later said in an interview, Jet's circulation just took off when they ran the picture. They had to reprint the first time they ever reprinted Jet magazine. And there was a lot of interest in that case. And the entire black community was becoming aware of the need to do something about it. On September 19th, 1955, Millam and Bryant's trial opens in the tiny little Tallahatchie County town of Sumner, Mississippi. Had almost 600 residents in 1955. It's about 250 now. The courthouse where the trial took place was restored in 2012, now houses the Emmett Till Interpretive Center. Black people and white women were banned from serving on the jury. An all-white, all-male jury chosen by the end of the day. Not a good look. Guessing all of Emmett's family knew when this happened that the men who murdered Emmett were definitely not going to pay for what they did. The county sheriff-elect helped the defense even further by advising them which jurors were doubtful and which ones were safe. One of the attorneys would later say, after the jury was chosen, any first-year law student could have won the case. Right? So this is a fucking joke. This is a dog and pony show. About a thousand people came to the courthouse, which only had 200 seats. The lead prosecutor in the case was Gerald Chatham. Gerald would die of a heart attack the year after the trial to age of 50. And his family thinks that the stress of being given a highly publicized and unwinnable case is what did him in. September 20th, 1955, Judge Curtis Swango recesses the court to allow more witnesses to be found. Local law enforcement, local NAACP leaders and reporters worked together to find sharecroppers who claimed they saw J.W. Millam's truck and heard the beating at the barn. September 21st, 1955, three surprise witnesses testify for the prosecution. All three witnesses are black. At the time of this trial, this was almost fucking unheard of. It was almost unheard of for black people to accuse white people of anything in court, let alone a lynching. The witnesses testified that they saw Millam and others around the barn on Leslie Millam's property and heard someone being beaten on the morning of the murder. Mose Wright stood up on the witness stand. You can find a picture of him online doing this in this moment and pointed at both Millam and Bryant, positively identifying them as Emmett's kidnappers. Mose testified, according to the Enterprise Journal of Macomb, Mississippi, About two o'clock, someone was at the door. They said, preacher, preacher, this is Mr. Bryant. I got up and opened the door. Mr. Millam was standing at the door with a pistol in his right hand and a flashlight in the other. When Chatham interrupted Mose and asked, Uncle Mose, do you see Mr. Millam in the courtroom? Mose stood the fuck up, pointed at Millam and said, there he is. Also pointed out Roy Bryant. He made sure that everyone in that court knew exactly who he was pointing at. He said that one of the men, he didn't see exactly who said it, warned him not to cause any trouble or, quote, you'll never live to be 65. Moe said his wife, Elizabeth, got out of bed at one point, was ordered to get back in the bed, and I want to hear those springs. Moe testified, my wife said, listen, she said, we'll pay you whatever you want to charge. We'll pay you if you release him. He saw the men had no interest in their pleas, and they took Emmett to the car about 50 feet from the porch. The headlights were off. 
And he heard a man in the darkness ask, is this the boy? Someone he didn't see who said yes. He said that the voice seemed a little lighter than a man's. Mose Wright also testified that he identified the body in the river as Emmett Till, and he watched the undertaker as he pulled the ring from one of Emmett's fingers. He identified the ring in court. The one Emmett's mother had given to him, the ring that had belonged to Emmett's father. The prosecution also called uh, on the undertaker, a police identification officer, and Emmett's mother to try to cast doubt on the defense's main argument that the body in the river was not Emmett. And Deputy Sheriff John Ed Cothran testified that after J.W. Mellon was arrested, he straight up admitted to kidnapping Emmett. They had so much evidence on these motherfuckers. Mammy Bradley testified September 22nd. She testified that she positively identified the body sent to Chicago as her son. According to the Greenwood Commonwealth, she said, I looked at the face very carefully. I just looked at it very carefully. I was able to find out that it was my son, Emmett Lewis Till. Next witness was Willie Reed. As mentioned earlier, Reed saw a truck with a group of white and black men park at the barn on Leslie Millam's property. Reed testified that around 8 a.m. August 28th, he saw four white men, two black men, and Emmett Till drive up to a barn with Emmett in the back of the truck. Emmett was carried into that barn. He said he then heard licks and hollering coming from inside the barn. He saw J.W. Millam leave the barn to drink water from a well, then re-enter the barn, had a pistol on his hip, and he heard the screams, or after he heard the screams, he went to a nearby store, came home to get ready for Sunday school. On the way back, he did not see or hear anything, and the truck was gone. He didn't know he saw Emmett at that time, but recognized him when he saw a picture. Reed testified after seeing a picture of Emmett in court. This is the boy I seen on the back of the truck. Like Moe's right, Reed stood up and pointed at J.W. Millam in court when asked to identify him. However, under cross-examination for the defense, Reed said he saw four white men and four black men when he previously said there were four white men and three black men. Also said he didn't see J.W. Millam in the truck. So was he lying or was he nervous as fuck? when cross-examined by white local attorneys accusing him of lying in a time and place where just making unwanted eye contact with these guys outside of the court could have got his ass beat or worse. Think about fucking nervous he must have been to accuse these guys of murder when he'd been raised not to even speak to white men unless spoken to. Mary Mandy Bradley, who lived on the plantation, also said she saw four white men go into the barn and come out of the barn. The state ended his case that afternoon after Willie's father testified that he saw Leslie Millam at the plantation that morning. Two potential witnesses who allegedly assisted with the abduction and murder were uh, unavailable to the prosecution. Leroy, too tight Collins, right? We mentioned him earlier. I fucking still love that nickname. Makes me imagine him wearing the tightest blue jeans anyone has literally ever wore. So tight, you could count his pubes. Too tight, a man named Henry Loggins, no relation to Kenny's as far as I'm aware, uh, who was assumed to be missing, were being held under false identities in a jail in Charleston, Mississippi on the orders of, any guesses? All-star sheriff and definitely not a total piece of shit, Peckerwood, Clarence Strider. Let, let me share a bit more about this clown, why I hate him so much. Uh, sheriff Strider was a feared figure in this area at this time. He was a big, imposing man. He was tall, broad-shouldered, weighed about 270 pounds, and he had money. He was a wealthy plantation owner, and his property could be identified from miles away by the letters S-T-R-I-D-E-R painted on subsequent roofs of his sharecropper's shacks. And he seemed to have been known for being particularly racist in a very racist area, in the most racist area of the whole U.S., he's like one of the most racist guys. Like even other racists are like, God damn, Clarence. They're people too, you know. He was 51 years old at the time of Emmett's murder and he was only sheriff because he admittedly, uh, this has happened later, bought votes, right? He himself admitted that much in July, 1968 on the floor of the state Senate. Also testified for the defense, very unusual in a criminal case with Emmett here, that he believed Emmett was alive and well living in Detroit with the grandfather 
He constantly tossed out racial slurs towards black journalists covering the trial. He was like a character in a movie about how racist parts of the South were back in the 50s that, you know, could easily seem exaggerated again, where, you know, people are like, come on, no way. And when everyone in this trial was acquitted, he went out of his way to publicly congratulate them and to show how racist this particular area of Mississippi still was three decades later, 11 years after his death in 1981, a portion of Mississippi 32, this highway, was designated the Henry Clarence Strider Memorial Highway. Man, fuck that guy. Hateful redneck, good old boy, fuck if there ever was one. Uh, a real, uh, what we have here is a failure to communicate type for you uh, Cool Hand Luke fans. Now let's get into the testimony of Carolyn Bryant. Uh, she testified on September 22nd outside the presence of a jury because Judge Curtis Swango ruled the testimony was unrelated to the kidnapping and uh, murder. Uh, okay. In her testimony, Carolyn did not mention Emmett by name. She was asked if she knew his name, but said she didn't. Said uh, she knew he wasn't from the area because of his accent. She testified, this Negro man came into the store and stopped at the candy counter. I was in the back of the store. I walked up to the candy counter. The youth ordered bubble gum. I held up my right hand for some money. He caught my hand. I removed my hand. He said, how about a date, baby? I turned and started to the back of the store. He caught me at the cash register and put both hands around my waist. He said, what's the matter, baby? Can't you take it? Carolyn said that she freed herself. According to the Clarion Ledger, she said she testified the Negro then addressed her in terms too unprintable to relate, ending the sentence with white women before. And remember, based on the layout of this store, based on what Simeon Wright said, Emmett would have had to have jumped the counter to do what she said he just did. And she never said he jumped the counter. And again, she'll, she'll change her story over the coming decades uh, again and again. She's the worst kind of fucking Karen. Uh, Carolyn continued, then another Negro came in and told him to leave and took him by the arm. He left unwillingly. He turned and said goodbye as he left. I started out to go to the car for my pistol he was standing on the front porch of the store he whistled important to know that the, uh, at the trial carolyn testified that she never saw emmett again after the alleged august 24th incident but then many years later uh again made a different statement uh, the following are more quotes from her testimony uh question when you got your pistol mrs bryant where was this boy then or should i say where was this man mm-hmm yeah making sure to frame a 14 year old kid as a man do you know any 14 year old kids do you consider men? I don't. Uh, when I turned around, she said he was getting in a car down the road. Did you rush back in the store then? Yes. Had you ever seen that man before? No. Have you ever seen him since? No. Mm -hmm. The defense next produced three witnesses who described the body as bloated in an advanced state of decomposition. Sheriff Peckerwood Strider uh, said that based on his experience, the body in the river must have been here at least 10 days, if not 15 he insisted the body was unidentifiable. Embalmer H.D. Malone testified that the body had to have been in the water for at least 10 days and was blown to beyond recognition. Uh, Dr. L.B. Otkin testified that the body had been there for eight days to two weeks, maybe. So good shady job here by the defense, thanks to Sheriff Strider and these other assholes, allowing the jurors to acquit the defendants and feel good about doing so. Right? How could they convict men of murdering someone who clearly wasn't dead? September 23rd, several character witnesses testified about the good reputations of Bryant and Millam, and the defense then rested their case. Prosecutor Gerald Chatham demanded justice in his closing arguments, saying they murdered that boy, and to hide the dastardly cowardly act, they tied barbed wire to his neck and to a heavy gin fan and then dumped him into a river for the turtles and the fish. The two defendants were dripping with the blood of Emmett Till. 
The defense told the jury in their closing remarks, every last Anglo-Saxon, one of them, or no, I'm sorry, <laughs> Jesus Christ, yeah. The defense told the jury in their closing remarks, every last Anglo-Saxon one of you has the courage to set these men free. They also said the jury's forefathers would turn over in their graves if they convicted Bryant and Millam. Man, not subtle at all. You white men need to do what is clearly right by your race. Set these other white folks free. It is what your white forefather Pecklewoods demand. I call on you to stand together. On that same day, the jury deliberated for a whole 67 minutes and acquitted Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam of kidnapping and murder. And then one motherfucker on the jury told a reporter, if we hadn't stopped to drink and pop, it wouldn't have taken that long. Ah, that is cold-blooded. I didn't give a fuck about Emmett. Probably thought he deserved to be killed for maybe flirting with a white woman. Uh, the jury foreman said the decision was based on the state's failure to, pr- uh, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was Emmett found in the river. Uh-huh. Moe's right. Willie Reed were then smuggled to Chicago after the trial over concerns for their safety. And in Chicago, Reed suffered a nervous breakdown. September 30th, 1955, Milliman and Bryant are released on bond. They still had separate kidnapping charges pending against them in LaFleur County for taking Emmett from his uncle's home. Carolyn still had a kidnapping charge of her too, but uh, one that will be conveniently ignored for the rest of her life. September and October of 1955, hundreds of thousands of people across America protest the verdict, but also the White Citizens Councils in Mississippi see a big surge in membership. We under attack. They almost convicted two of our own for doing nothing more than defending a white woman's honor. Uh, black people in the area now boycott Bryant Millam's stores. Within 15 months, the stores uh, close or are sold. At least in all of this, their pocketbooks hurt a little bit. Well, for the moment here. Uh, black people also refuse to work on the Millam farm. Five black families also leave Sheriff Strider's plantation. Good for them. Two years after the trial in 1957, there's an unsuccessful attempt to assassinate Sheriff Peckerwood Strider. Uh, someone shot at him as he sat in his car. Just missed that fucking clown's head, unfortunately, by a few inches. October 15th, 1955, the Memphis Commercial Appeal uh, publishes an article revealing that Emmett's father, Louis Till, is executed by the U.S. Army in Italy after raping two Italian women and murdering another woman. Mississippi Senator, you know, that, that had happened during the war. Mississippi Senator James Eastland leaked that info very intentionally to the press. Army officials then confirmed that Private Louis Till of the 177th Port Company was indeed hanged in Italy, July 2nd, 1945, for rape and murder. According to a 1955 article by the Mississippi newspaper, uh, the Sun-Herald, Mammy Bradley saw the War Department inform her that her husband's cause of death was willful misconduct, said she never learned any details, despite sending letters to his commanding officer, chaplain, and even President Roosevelt. So what, so what a gross thing to do here, to leak this to the public, all right? The, it's clear what they were trying to do here, right? As if this somehow proves that Emma got what he deserved. Uh, you know, it proves that, you know, uh, being a rapist is, was in his blood, Senator Eastland clearly did this to somehow frame Emmett himself uh, as being someone deserving of what he happened and to paint the Bryants as the victims. And Senator Eastland was a huge piece of shit. Uh, Could do an entire episode on him. The Senator version of Sheriff Strider, brazenly racist, aggressively fought back against desegregation and openly anti-Semitic as well. Like, like open to the point of saying shit on the Senate floor, just brazenly. Uh, Represented Mississippi in the U.S. Senate from 1943 to 1978. Surprised he didn't wear a Klan hat on the Senate floor. Uh, November 9th, 1955, the Florida County Grand Jury declined to indict Roy Bryant and J. Dub uh, Millam for kidnapping. Mamie Bradley said after the decision, as quoted by the Greenwood Commonwealth, 
Just about everything has run out on me now. I don't know what to say. I don't see how they could fail to indict those men. I mean, if there was, you know, a true justice system down there at this time, they, they would have definitely convicted them of all of this. Uh, I imagine she now thought uh, she had hit rock bottom with this shit, but that is still coming. Emotionally, after all Mammy has already been through, this shit's about to get worse. This is so fucking outrageous. January 24th, 1956, Look Magazine, which ran from 1937 to 1971, had a huge circulation, about 5 million subscribers in 1956. They published a story about the case featuring an interview with Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam. And in this story, these Peckerwood motherfuckers confessed in detail to kidnapping and murdering Emmett because they couldn't be tried again because of double jeopardy. They did it for a $4,000 paycheck. The article was titled The Shocking Story of Approved Killing Mississippi, written by William Bradford Huey. The editor's note stated, In the long history of man's inhumanity to man, racial conflict has produced some of the most horrible examples of brutality. The recent slaying of Emmett Till in Mississippi is a case in point. The editors of Look are convinced that they are presenting here, for the first time, the real story of that killing, the story no jury heard and no newspaper newspaper reader saw. Uh, in the interview, Roy said he got home about 4 a.m., Friday, August 27th. He'd been trucking that shrimp from New Orleans to Texas. He slept at the Millam's home for a while, and Carolyn went to work at the store. That afternoon, Roy came to the store, and a black man told him what had happened two days earlier. He said the Chicago boy, who was staying with Preacher, was the one involved. Uh, Bradford Huey wrote, Once Roy Bryant knew, in his environment, in the opinion of most white people around him, for him to have done nothing would have marked him for a coward and a fool. That evening, Roy was unable to act because he and Carolyn were stuck at the store with no car. Saturday was their busiest day at work. Around 10.30 p.m. that night, Roy's brother, J-Dub, stopped by the store. Roy told him uh, he wanted him to come back early Sunday morning. When Roy told him why, he agreed. J-Dub now drove to one of his brother's stores in Minter City, closed up around 12.30 a.m., drove to his home in Glendora. His wife, Juanita, was visiting family at the time. J-Dub decided not to go to sleep. Instead, he filled up his gas tank and drove to money. Got to money just before 2 a.m. August 28th, the Bryants were asleep. He knocked on the back door, woke up Roy, and said, let's go. Roy got dressed, brought a 45 Colt with him. Millam also had a 45 caliber weapon. Both men were reportedly sober at the time. J-Dub had a beer around 9 p.m. Roy had nothing to drink. They drove to Preacher's house, about three miles east of the store. Obviously, this is a little different from the timeline events I laid out earlier based on court testimony, also based on what others said happened. Seems they knew from the beginning where to go find Emmett instead of not knowing. No mention in this account of them grabbing that wrong kid, asking him, uh, you know, uh, if it was him, tossing him from the truck, you know, bashing his face into the dirt. Doesn't mean that didn't happen. I guess if they were to admit that here, that would be a separate incident that they hadn't already been tried for and maybe could be tried again. Uh, I think and this is speculation, but I, I think they likely talked with a lawyer before this interview uh, who told them what they could talk about and not be worried about being indicted again and what they could not talk about. Okay, so back to this interview. Roy Bryant said he knocked on Moe's slash Preacher's door. When Preacher answered, he asked if a boy from Chicago was inside the home. Preacher led them to a bedroom where four boys were sleeping in two beds. Emmett was sharing a bed with his cousin, Simeon Wright. Roy asked Preacher to turn on the lights, but they weren't working. So Bryant only had the light of his flashlight. Preacher was probably not surprised by the visit. He later testified that he'd heard about the trouble and talked to Emmett about it. Emmett was afraid and wanted to go home the day after the incident with Carolyn. The girl in the group at the store urged Emmett to leave as well. However, Preacher's wife, Elizabeth, encouraged Emmett to stay and finish his visit. Damn. Preacher said, I thought they might say something to him, but I didn't think they'd kill a boy. J.W. Millam, 
uh, said he shined a light on Emmett's face, asked if he did the talking. J-Dub ordered Emmett to get dressed and go with them. The men said that now Preacher and Elizabeth trying to talk them out of taking Emmett with them. Preacher told them he ain't got good sense. He didn't know what he was doing. Don't take him. Elizabeth offered to pay them for damages. Millam told them to go to sleep and they led Emmett outside, telling him to lie down in the back of the truck. Elizabeth Wright went to a white neighbor's home, but the neighbor decided he could do, uh, he could not do anything to help. She and Preacher drove to her brother's home. He went to the sheriff's office in Greenwood in the morning. Wheeler Parker called his mother in Chicago, who then called Mammy Bradley. J-Dub Millam and Roy Bryant claimed they did not stop at the store to have Carolyn identify Emmett. Now, is that true or are they just legally protecting her? Uh, they said they crossed the Tallahatchie River and headed west. They said they planned to just whip him and scare some sense into him. As we talked about earlier, uh, J-Dub Millam knew of a place that he found the previous year while out geese hunting. He described it as a hundred foot sheer drop. Said he wanted to stand Emmett on the bluff, whip him with his gun, then shine the light down on the water to make him think they would throw him in. They drove about 75 miles through several towns, driving down dirt and gravel roads. They eventually had to give up when they couldn't find this spot. So they headed back to, uh, they headed back to Millam's, sorry, a uh, place in Glendora. It was now 5 a.m., Bradford Huey now explains why Emmett, who was in the bed of the truck, hadn't jumped out. Part of it was because the Chevy pickup Miller was driving had a large wraparound rear window and Brian could see him. Other reason was because he didn't think the men were going to kill him. Miller said in his interview, we were never able to scare him. They had just filled him so full of that poison that he was hopeless. Uh, by they here, I'm 99% certain he means northerners up in Chicago. You know, people not uh, insanely racist or as insanely racist as he is. Also, Emmett Till was a fearless young man uh, at 14 years old, right? Man, fuck. These grown pistol-carrying fucks couldn't scare him. Would you be scared in his position? I would. That kid was strong. In a better world, fighting man would have showed up to save him and whip some fucking peckerwood ass. Fighting man, fighting man. I am fighting man. Watch out for my melee sword. This is my defense shield. Today I destroy the Packerwood Hobgoblins. Today I destroy the Packerwood Hobgoblins. Today I destroy the Packerwood Hobgoblins. That'd be fucking great. Fight, fight, fight. Chop them with the sword of race to vengeance. Smash them with the Packerwood hammer of justice. Rid the world of Packerwood Hobgoblins. A little bit off, off melody there, but you know. I'm fucking worked up. Uh, something like that would have been really cool. If we could just fucking rearrange the world to be exactly like we want it to be. Um, but of course, that didn't happen. Uh, back to what these dirty fucks said happened. Uh, they said that uh, they drove Emmett to a tool house at the back of Millam's home. And there they began beating him with their pistols. So now they're pistol whipping a child, 14 year old child, who still isn't showing them he's scared, according to them. Emmett reportedly never hollered, continued talking. He said, you bastards, I'm not afraid of you. I'm as good as you are. I've had white women. My grandmother was a white woman. Millam told Huey at this point in the interview, well, what else could we do? He was hopeless. I'm no bully. Literally says that. I I'm no bully. I've never heard a slur omitted in my life. I like slur omitted. And then he pauses. In their place, I know how to work them. But I just decided it was, a, uh, it was time a few people got put on notice. As long as I live and can do anything about it, slur omitted are going to stay in their place. Slur omitted ain't going to vote where I live. If they did, they control the government. They ain't going to go to school with my kids. And when a slur omitted gets close to mentioning sex with a white woman, he's tired of living. I'm likely to kill him. Me and my folks fought for this country and we got some rights. <laughs> That's like the classic fucking cry of just the dumb motherfucker. I got some, I got my rights. 
me and my folks fought for this country so we get to do whatever the fuck we want. Man, I have so much respect for veterans, but being a veteran doesn't just uh, give you carte blanche to be a fucking piece of shit. Uh, he says, so he says, me and my folks, we got some right. I stood there in that shit and I listened to that slur omitted, throw that poison at me. And I just made up my mind. Chicago boy, I said, I'm tired of them sending your kind down here to stir up trouble. Goddamn you. I'm going to make an example of you just so everybody can know how me and my folks stand. Oh, yikes. I know, right? Ignorance can be unlearned, but some days I'm like, can we just take everybody who believes things like, can we just kill them? <laughs> what if we just kill them all? I'm just, you know, just spitballing. Uh, listen to how he has rationalized kidnapping and violently assaulting a child, right? Rationalize and murder a child, right? We've talked about the other a lot here lately. It's fucking important to talk about it because of shit like this. These white men living down in rural Mississippi this time literally did not see black people as being human. Not like them. They see them as savages, uh, animals, dangerous animals. And therefore, they're able to rationalize evil acts as being good, protective, needed acts. That is the exact same mentality the Nazis employed towards Jewish people, right? Exactly how seemingly otherwise reasonable people can do evil shit. It's not evil to them. They've spun it around in their minds so much that they're the victim. They're protecting themselves from uh, aggressors. Someone trying to destroy my traditional way of life. It's all fucking twisted around upside down. How often in history does the true aggressor play the victim? Right over and over. We watch this cycle repeat and every fucking time it starts anew, far too many people choose not to see it this time. Uh, the day the story was printed, I would love to tell you that their worthless shits, these worthless shits, were fucking executed. I wish I could say that vigilante uh, justice lynched these motherfuckers. Poetic justice, but you know, that's not how these stories usually end. They often end that way in the movies, though, because we crave, many of us crave that kind of justice, right? If we can't get it in the real world, we can at least cathartically get it in a story. In the parallel universe of the Suckverse, I'll have you know, instead of Fighting Man, the ghosts of the Toy Box Killer, David Parker Ray, Bob Berdella, the Butcher of Kansas City, uh, the Scorecard Killer, Randy Kraft, and some of the other worst sexual sadists and murders we've ever covered, uh, they don't torment anyone innocent, but they do go after shitbags like Roy Bryant and J-Dub Millum. Uh, they manifest themselves in some kind of demonic physical form and just uh, sexually torture the ever-loving shit out of these guys, drawing out their deaths as long as possible, and then, I don't know, eating their souls. Right? Fucking Nimrod, Nimrod takes care of that last part. Feels good to imagine that. Uh, moving away from that murder fantasy and sadly reconnecting with reality, Emmett Till is now badly beaten, but his spirit is not broken. And now because his spirit is still strong and a strong black man scares the shit out of J-Dub Millum because he himself is so small, uh, he decides Emmett has to die. And he's already thinking about hiding Emmett's body. He tries to think of where he can get uh, a weight and he remembers a cotton gin that had recently gotten new equipment. He saw two men removing an old fan. Now he wants it. Uh, the men now order the still conscious Emmett to get back in the truck. He does. They drive him to the progressive ginning company. Sun is starting to rise and Millum recalled feeling worried that someone would see them and accuse them of stealing the fan. Although he's not worried about like uh, killing this kid, but he's worried about, you know, being accused of stealing that fan. Uh, the two men stood outside while Emmett himself, they made him go in and grab the fan. You know, essentially he's digging his own grave and Emmett loads the fan into the truck. And again, remember that these assholes are voluntarily telling all this to a journalist they know is going to write what they're saying and publish, right? An article about this in a magazine read by millions. This is beyond brazen. They clearly want black people to read this and be scared and white people to read that and think, oh, good for them. Good for those fellas. Attaboy. Uh, this is happening again in America in 1955. I Love Lucy is the number one show in the country. Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his comments playing on the radio. 
Disney's Lady and the Tramp is playing in theaters and Emmett Till is being tortured and murdered by these clowns bragging about it in the 19, uh, you know, uh, 50s equivalent of People magazine. With the fan loaded up, Emmett's killers drive him back to Glendora and cross a bridge over the Tallahatchie River, turn right, drive down a dirt road along the river. They find a, quote, lonely spot with a steep riverbank. Emmett is told to pick up the fan, carry it to the riverbank, then ordered to remove his clothing by now it's just before 7 a.m. And J-Dub said he asked him, you still as good as I am? And he said that Emmett responded, yeah. J-Dub said, uh, said he then asked, you still had white women? And Emmett said, yeah. And that was it. That was enough. Following his final word, J-Dub shot him in the head. Emmett's head was turned and the bullet hit him in his right ear. Fell to the ground dead. Milliman Bryant now tied the gin fan to his neck, barbed wire, rolled his body into the river, Right, then they drove back to Millam home and uh, burned evidence and, I don't know, probably had some fucking beers and clapped themselves on the back. Uh, not only did they get away with that, uh, they got paid $4,000 to tell that tale. And then, living free, they just carried on with their lives. 1975, Carolyn will divorce Roy Bryant, citing habitual drunkenness and habitual cruel and inhuman treatment. Mm, that tracks. I'd love to say I feel sorry for her, but I don't. Uh, the Bryants moved away from Mississippi in the late 50s. They lived in Louisiana and Texas, returned to Mississippi in 1973 to run another grocery store. And Roy Bryant continued working as a welder. Carolyn got married twice more to uh, Griffin Chandler, then David Donham. According to the New York Times, Carolyn lived for many years in Greenville, Mississippi, and did not work outside her home. In the late 80s, she studied part-time at Mississippi Delta Community College, but did not earn a degree. Later in her long life, she lived in Raleigh, North Carolina. Roy remarried in 1980, moved back to Mississippi. Uh, he was partially blind from welding, was convicted of food stamp fraud violations in both 1984 and 1988. J-Dub Millam died of bladder cancer December 31st, 1980. 1985, Roy Bryant secretly recorded talking about this murder. In a tape, he said they were drinking that night and that after, uh, quote, we done whooped that son of a bitch, he backed out on killing the motherfucker and decided to take him to the hospital. But Emmett could not have survived his injuries, so they said they decided to put his ass in the Tallahatchie River. Uh, Brian did not name who else was involved at this moment, indicated he never would, saying, I'm the only one living that knows, and that's all that will ever be known. Roy Bryant died of cancer September 1st, 1994. Mammy Till Mobley died January 7th, 2003. She was 81, suffered cardiac arrest on the day of her death, died at the hospital. She'd been on dialysis three times a week for some time before her death. Mammy spent the rest of her life trying to keep Emmett's memory alive in the pursuit of justice while also becoming a civil rights advocate. Reverend Jesse Jackson said at a news conference inside Mammy's home after she died, what must be put into perspective is that we often say the modern civil rights movement began with Rosa Parks in Montgomery. That's really not accurate. Mrs. Mobley did a profound strategic thing. With his body water soaked and defaced, most people would have kept the casket covered. She let the body be exposed. More than 100,000 people saw his body lying in that casket here in Chicago. That must have been at that time the largest single civil rights demonstration in American history. Mammy spoke with the New York Times before she died, said that after Emma was killed, at first I just wanted to go into a hole and hide my face from the world. Uh, she soon started to talk about what happened, saying it gave me a chance to get out what is clogged up inside. Because if I don't, because if I don't talk, it stays in and worries me. If I can't let it go, even though I cry sometimes, I have some release. May 10th, 2004, the Justice Department announced that it was opening a criminal investigation into Emmett Till's case in light of new evidence uncovered during the filming of two documentaries, which suggested that other people besides Milliman Bryant 
may have been involved in Emmett's abduction and murder. Right? Roy and J-Dub, not entirely truthful, probably, in their post-trial $4,000 confession. You know, probably hiding the identities of others, again, for legal reasons. Information gathered by filmmakers suggests that up to 10 additional people took part in or observed the murder. I think I said a dozen earlier, so, you know, 10. Uh, yeah, how fucking sick, right? This made it a whole community affair. Beating a 14-year-old half to death and putting a bullet in his head for a little uh, extra late-night entertainment. Filmmaker Keith Beauchamp, uh, who spent nine years making a documentary titled The Untold Story of Emmett Till, said he believed five people were still alive who were involved in or had knowledge of the murder. Stanley Nelson produced a 2003 documentary titled The Murder of Emmett Till, which was broadcast on PBS. Nelson said there were several people who had evidence but didn't testify. According to a 2006 FBI report, a man named Kimbrell was identified as accompanying Millam and Bryant when they appeared with Emmett at the Bryant's home slash store. Elmer Kimbrell may have worked at the Glendora Cotton Gin in 1955. Five months after the murder of Emmett, uh, in December of 1955, this fucker uh, shot and killed a black man at a service station in Glendora because he allegedly filled the gas tank when Kimbrell only asked for $3 worth of gas. That's who this guy is. Uh, Kimbrell was also found at J.W. Millam's home after the murder. Uh, he was tried for that gas station murder, but of course, you know, jury acquitted him. Uh, he died in 1985, right? See, killing Emmett was not an aberration for this place and time. Killing black kids and men over nothing, over fucking some gas discrepancy and getting away with it, that was just a way of life down in backwoods Mississippi in the 50s. Uh, March 29th, 2007, Emmett Till's autopsy report was released. The autopsy found that Emmett died of a gunshot wound to the head, but also had broken wrist bones, skull, and leg fractures. When Emmett's body was pulled out of the river, the report stated, the crown of his head was just crushed out and a piece of his skull just fell out. Fuck. Report also established a timeline of the violence inflicted upon Emmett and more based on witness statements and the deathbed confession of Roy and J.W.'s brother, Leslie Millam. October 7, 2008, President Bush signs into law the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act, which gave the Justice Department $10 million a year to examine civil rights murders from before 1970, and $3.5 million to help local law enforcement with investigations. So that's good. 2017, the Department of Justice opened the investigation after Carolyn Bryant Donham, who was still alive, was quoted in a book saying she lied. Right, here we go. When she testified that Emmett grabbed her and made sexual advances towards her. 62 years later, 62 years too late, she tells the truth. For a moment, she'll retract it. Uh, there are pictures of her smiling her fucking ass off when Roy and J-Dub were acquitted of Emmett's murder in court. Right, she knew. She knew then. She got him killed. Didn't care then, but now that she's near death, you know, now that she's uh, 83, maybe she has a moment of uh, feeling a weakness in conscience, wants to clear it, but too little, way too late. Dr. Timothy B. Tyson published the book The Blood of Emmett Till in January of 2017. Tyson is a senior research scholar at Duke University, and he interviewed Carolyn in 2008, finished writing a book about it all eight years later. This was Carolyn's first known interview since police had spoken with her way back when it happened. Carolyn actually sought out speaking Dr. Tyson because she liked his book, Blood Done, Sign My Name, an account of a murder of a young black man uh, by whites in North Carolina in 1970. She told him she wanted to explain her side of the story and Tylee interview interviewed her at her home in Raleigh. And Tyson wrote in his book about her testimony that Till had grabbed her around the waist and uttered obscenities. She now told me, quote, that part's not true. Fuck. Uh, Tyson wrote in his book that it's very possible that the only thing Emmett may have done was uh, break the social rule of never touching a white person's hand when handing money to a cashier. That and fucking whistle. And that was enough to have those guys do what they did. Carolyn was quoted as saying, nothing that boy did ever could justify what happened to him. 
In March of 2018, the Justice Department told Congress in a report that the investigation into Emmett's murder had been reopened after receiving new information without specifying what that info was. July 12, 2018, a federal official told the Associated Press that the 2017 book led the government to renew the investigation into Emmett's murder. The reopening of the case was kept quiet until contents of a federal report came to light that same day. December 7th, 2021. The Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Mississippi announces that it had closed the investigation into a witness's alleged recantation of her account of events leading up to Emmett's murder. This announcement did not use Tyson or Carolyn's names, but obviously they're talking about them. The department conducted the, uh, conducted the investigation as part of its cold case initiative and pursuant to the passage of the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act. The department and FBI examined whether Carolyn had recanted and if so, whether she had information that would allow for the prosecution of any living person. According to the announcement from the U.S. Attorney's Office, Northern District of Mississippi, a witness indicated that contrary to longstanding belief about the events in and near the store, no one challenged Till to speak to or flirt with the white woman who was at the store, nor did Till show a photo of a white girl to the men standing outside the store. Right? The more evidence comes out, the, the more the story changes and the worse it looks. According to this investigation, Emmett brought, uh, bought some items in the store and left. The witness said that the woman, Carolyn, left the store unhurried and undisturbed when Emmett whistled at her. Emmett's companions hurried to get away from the store because Emmett violated the code in the South, right, regarding the whistle. When the FBI questioned Carolyn about that, what she told Dr. Tyson regarding Emmett never grabbing her, she now denied telling him that, right? So fucking gross. She'll admit the truth to an author, but then if the FBI comes poking around, she might get in some legal trouble all these years later. She still won't fucking come clean. Uh, a release by the U.S. Attorney's Office stated, although lying to the FBI is a federal offense, there is insufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she lied to the FBI when denied having recanted to the professor. There is insufficient evidence to prove that she ever told the professor that any part of her testimony was untrue, right? It's a, it's a he said, she said now. Her Peckerwood word versus the professor's word, but still he said, she said. At a ceremony at the White House on March 29th, 2022, President Biden signed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act into law. Biden said racial hate isn't an old problem. It's a persistent problem. Hate never goes away. It only hides under the rocks. It gets a little bit of oxygen. It comes roaring back out, screaming, what, uh, screaming, what stops it? All of us. Law was passed after 12 decades of failed attempts to pass anti-lynching legislation. Not sure exactly why it was so hard for that legislation to pass. Uh, I'm going to hope it was because of other garbage attached to previous acts and not because a bunch of U.S. politicians were still hesitant to crack down on lynching because they knew that wouldn't play well with their voting base. Uh, perpetrators can now receive up to 30 years in prison when a conspiracy to commit a hate crime results in death or seriously or serious bodily injury. July 14th, 2022, Dr. Timothy Tyson provides a copy of Carolyn Bryant's unpublished memoir, memoir to the AP. The 99-page memoir is titled More Than a Wolf Whistle, the memoir of Carolyn Bryant Donham, written with the help of her daughter-in-law. In it, Carolyn wrote the following about Emmett, uh, said, he came in our store and put his hands on me with no provocation. Do I think he should have been killed for doing that? Absolutely, unequivocally, no. So just for a fucking second, she did the right thing, admitted she made that bullshit up, but now backtracks the FBI and then backtracks in print. Dies, standing by the lie, they got that uh, kid killed. Right? The memoir contained more contradictions from her previous statements about what had happened on the night of Emmett's murder. She claimed that J.W. Mellum and Roy Bryant brought Emmett to the store so she could identify him. Said she tried to help Emmett by saying he was not the boy who allegedly harassed her in the store. 
She wrote, J-Dub and a friend of his walked in with Emmett between them. Each was holding one of his arms, but it was clear they did not seem to have harmed him, that they had done nothing to harm him. If he was bruised, I couldn't tell. They stood between the kitchen and the bathroom with the young man standing in the center. Roy and I were on the other side of the kitchen. Roy turned to me and growled, is that him? Before I even saw his face, I softly answered, right? She's just, she's a great person. I softly, no, it's not him. Uh, I couldn't even look at the young man, she said. I knew that he was there, but I couldn't look at him. I didn't want him hurt. So I told Roy that he had the wrong person. I said again with a stronger voice, it's not him. You had the wrong person. Uh, She said, Roy raised his voice and almost screamed at me. Damn it, look at him. You haven't even looked at him. I looked straight at Emmett and even stronger. I said, no, it's not him. You had the wrong person. It's not him. All I could think was take him home. Please take him home. I was terrified for his safety. His uncle, as I later found out, begged them to just beat Emmett up there at the house, not to take him away. Uh, As she's, uh, as I'm thinking about her saying this stuff, I'm also picturing the picture of her online when uh, her husband and uh, brother-in-law get off on this case. And she is so fucking happy. Just pure joy on her face. She's full of shit here. To my utter disbelief, the young man flashed me a strange smile and said, yes, it was me or something to that effect. Kaylin wrote that she, quote, always felt like a victim as well as Emmett <laughs> and paid dearly with an altered life. She's the, it's the fucking same, you guys. What happened to Emmett happened to her for all intent and purpose, right? It samesies. Jesus. At the end of the manuscript, Kaylin wrote, I've always prayed that God would bless his family. I'm truly sorry for the pain his family was caused. Does it feel pretty gross to you that she's bringing God's name into this mess? It feels a little gross to me. Uh, AP reported further contradictions in her memoir. Uh, Carolyn claimed that she yelled for help. Fuck, no, she didn't. No one ever reported her uh, hearing her scream back in 1955. And remember, her sister-in-law, Juanita Peckerwood, was in the same building as her. Tiny building. She never mentioned back then that she and Roy talked about the abduction, but wrote it in her manuscript because, you know, that they did discuss it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, October 21st, 2022. Statue of Emmett Till is unveiled at Rail Spike Park in Greenwood, Mississippi. The site's about 10 miles from the remains of the old Bryant grocery store in Money. The Washington Post reported in 2015, Bryant's grocery is derelict and forgotten, much like the town of Money. Although Till's lynching is considered a pivotal spark of the civil rights movement, there's little here to recall those events other than a modest historic marker erected outside Bryant's four years ago. The Mississippi Delta region's economy is suffering. The towns in the area were dominated by agriculture, which is a fading industry. Many don't think having a museum and money would change that. Washington Post also reported that the funeral home where Emmett was uh, brought to is also in a state of decay. The shed at the Sheridan Plantation in Drew, Mississippi, where Emmett was beaten, still standing. One of the few places that have been restored is the courthouse in Sumner, where the trial took place, as I mentioned. Uh, There are 18 sites in Glendora that were part of the case. Signs marking the sites have been vandalized and shot in recent years. So that's cool. Still plenty of good old boy Peckerwoods in the area. Uh, Museum is uh, at least located in the former gin building where the fan used to weigh down uh, Emmett's body was taken. December 21st, 2022, Congress posthumously, posthumously, there we go. That word, that's a tricky one for me. uh, Awarded Emmett Till and Mammy Till Mobley the Congressional Gold Medal which is displayed at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., near his casket. April 25th, 2023. Very recent, Carolyn Brian Donham dies in hospice in Westlake, Louisiana, 88 years old. Uh, rumor has it, she starved to death. Her hospice nurse was black, and every time she asked for something to eat, her nurse would say, I'll be sure to go grab you some pudding just as soon as you tell the truth about Emmett. You no good wrinkled up peck of wood cunt. 
Uh, I started that rumor. Uh, Reverend Wheeler Parker, 84 years old, is now the last living witness to Emmett's abduction. He said in a statement after Carolyn's death, as a person of faith for more than 60 years, I recognize that any loss of life is tragic and I don't have any ill will or animosity toward her. Even though no one now will be held to account of the death of my cousin and my best friend, it is up to all of us to be accountable to the challenges we still face in overcoming racial injustice. So he's a better guy than I am. Good for him for not wishing torment on her soul. Uh, Dr. Timothy Tyson also issued a statement saying, it has comforted America to see this as merely a story of monsters, her among them. What this narrative keeps us from seeing is the monstrous social order that cared nothing for the life of Emmett Till, nor thousands more like him. Neither the federal government nor the government of Mississippi did anything to prevent or punish this murder. Condemning what Donham did is easier than confronting what America was and is. And then July 25th, 2023, just two days ago, as I record this, the White House authorizes federal funding for a monument. The Emmett Till and Mammy Till Mobley National Monument includes three protected sites in Illinois, where Emmett was born 82 years ago, today, uh, just this uh, past Tuesday, and in Mississippi, where he was tortured and killed. Right, glad this was done. In the past few years, more than 40 states have introduced or passed laws or taken other measures to restrict how issues of race and racism are taught in schools because too many people are scared of the truth. Why is teaching the truth so hard to accept for some people? Never here. Not going to change the cult of the curious to the cult of a bunch of fucking cowards. Cult of a bunch of bullshit due to shifting cultural trends. You can get your fake news somewhere else if you just can't handle truth. And that'll take us out of today's timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Man, what a powerful story, right? I think most of us think about uh, Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat to a white pastor on a Montgomery, Alabama city bus. We think about the uh, civil rights movement America starting. And in many ways, that is correct. But really the lynching of Emmett Till, right? The outrage around his death is what started it. Rosa refused to give up her seat 100 days after Emmett's murder and said Emmett was on her mind when she made that decision. Thankfully, despite the hateful and disgusting way that rural white Mississippi responded to Emmett's death, many others in the nation did not respond that way. Many others were brave enough to finally take a, a real stand against ignorance and mindless hate, take a stand against the Sheriff Striders of the world, against the Carolyn Bryants and Roy Bryants and J-Dub Millums. Right? This story is a good reminder of why it is important to speak up against hate. Currently, when you do so, uh, you know, there's a contingent, vocal minority, I hope, of small-minded people who will say, uh, you know, that you're woke. That's the, that's the lazy dismissive term now, right? They'll bitch about you getting too political. And you know what? Fuck those people. If we all follow their cowardly examples, we would still be living in a world that looked like rural Mississippi in 1955 right now or worse. Hail Nimrod, Team Meat Sack forever. And also, if you're listening in uh, New Madrid, Mississippi or Money, Mississippi, I hope you, uh, I hope you started walking out of town by now. Go on now, get. <laughs> Keep walking. Get a better life yourself. Uh, now, after I take Mojangles over to piss on Roy Bryant and J-Dub uh, Millum's graves, it'll be time for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Emmett Lewis Till was just 14 years old. He was the victim of a lynching in Mississippi. Emmett grew up in Chicago. Although the city was segregated, Emmett didn't understand the kind of segregation that still existed in the Deep South. And the many unspoken rules that black people were supposed to follow when interacting with white people. One evening, Emmett was alone with the white woman, grocery store owner Carolyn Bryant, for about a minute. What exactly happened during that minute will now never be known for certain. But uh, Carolyn's claims, claims that sure seemed to be a bunch of peckerwood bullshit, 
led to Emmett's murder. Number two, on September 23rd, 1955, an all-Peckerwood, all-male jury acquitted Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam of murder and kidnapping. And then just a few months later, in January of 1956, Look Magazine published an interview with the two men where they confessed for a $4,000 payday in great detail how they murdered Emmett and disposed of his body. Because of double jeopardy laws, they could not be prosecuted after making that confession. Uh, Number three, the murder of Emmett Till left a huge impact on the entire country and is considered by many to be the true beginning of the modern civil rights movement. Emmett's mother, Mammy Till Mobley, went on to become an important figure of the civil rights movement. Thousands of people, maybe millions, saw Emmett's badly beaten body between his funeral and a magazine publishing a picture taken at his funeral. Mammy wanted everyone to know exactly what happened to her son. Number four, Carolyn Bryant Donham gave several contradicting statements throughout her life about what really happened the night Emmett was murdered. Moe's preacher Wright testified that he heard a woman's voice outside his home when he watched Emmett being taken away by Milliman Bryant, but Carolyn maintained she was never there. I bet she was. What if she was there for the whole thing? Uh, trial, she testified that she never saw Emmett again after the alleged incident in her store, but many years later in a memoir that was released to the press in 2022, she wrote that Bryant and Millen brought Emmett to the store so she could identify him. You know where she begged that he'd be okay. She also claimed that uh, she lied in an effort to save him, but he admitted his own identity, right? Carolyn uh, admitted to author Timothy Tyson that she lied at trial, but was never prosecuted for perjury and was never arrested for kidnapping, despite the fact that a warrant was issued for her arrest in 1955. Warrant law enforcement never made a real attempt to serve her. You know, because she had, she had kids. She had kids to take care of. Number five, new info. Uh, who was the girl in Emmett's photo, right? That he was supposedly looking at outside the store. The photo of him and a white girl. Some versions of the story. Uh, say he showed to some cousins, you know, uh, which preceded him being dared to flirt with Carolyn Bryant. Well, in a 1987 docuseries on the American civil rights movement called Eyes on the Prize, Emmett's cousin Curtis Jones said Emmett kept a picture of some white kids he graduated elementary school with, right? A school photo, a school photo, his friends. Documentary producer Henry Hampton told NPR that Emmett showed the picture to his friends, pointed out the white girl in the picture and said she was his girlfriend. Emmett attended a segregated school, so historians wondered how he could have a class photo with white kids. Well, when Joan Brody heard this interview, she realized that had to be me. She talked to the Clarion Ledger in 2018 when she was 76. Joan and her twin brother were attending Lewis Champlain Elementary School one summer because they needed extra credits to attend South Shore High School. Lewis Champlain was normally an all-black school, but Chicago did not keep as many schools open in the summers. So some white kids went there for class. Joan was the only white girl in Emmett's class, and the two sat next to each other. She remembered laughing when Emmett uh, made jokes on occasions, right? Emmett, uh, the kid who loved to joke around. His wolf whistle was probably just that, joking around like teenage boys do, right? I'm sure that I whistled or did the equivalent around attractive older women when I was that age. Hell, when I was in eighth grade, I literally would walk uh, with a few buddies under the bleachers at high school football games and try and look up the skirts (laughs) of our classmates' moms. In another world, I would have been fucking killed for doing that. Uh, The eighth graders graduated in August. She attended a graduation ceremony and took a picture that could have had him in it. She said she uh, said never saw Emmett again after that. Well, of course not. Uh, Joan disagreed with Carolyn Bryant's claims about Emmett saying he wasn't a smart alecky kid. He wasn't a person to smart off to a white woman or any woman. She also said that Emmett was a gentleman, didn't talk about sex, at least uh, not around her, not around anyone she knew. She emphasized that the story should be about Emmett, not her, saying, I want people to know that he did go to an integrated school and that he was a nice kid. He was not the kid he was made out to be. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The lynching of Emmett Till has been sucked. Uh, Again, I hope that story hit hard for you like it did for me. Uh, If it annoyed you, 
that I even told that story, man, I fucking pity you. Uh, thanks again to the Space Lizards for putting that one on my plate. And uh, thank you to the whole Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Thanks to Olivia Lee for doing a bunch of killer research. And thanks to Logan Keith, the art warlock, running the cameras and recording today. Uh, did you know you can watch this on YouTube? I consistently forget to mention that. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we get fucking weird. Do you have sexual fantasies? I bet you do. I hope you do. If not, I pray Lucifina uh, gives some to you. They're fun. They can be. 97% of surveyed Americans in the largest study to date report having sexual fantasies. The most common sexual fantasy among American adults involves bringing a third or fourth person into the mix. But we usually don't talk about sexual fantasies like that. For many of the killers we've covered, their sexual fantasies became their entire worlds and led to the destruction of countless lives. And that's what happened to Dennis Nielsen. Uh, that being said, we've never covered a weirdo quite like Dennis. From 1978 to 1983, Dennis killed at least 12 young men and boys. Well, probably more like at least uh, 15, maybe up to 16. Did unspeakable things to their corpses. Dennis, who had once been a shy young boy from a rough and tumble Scotland fishing town, looked to all the world like an ordinary bachelor. But inside, holy shit, was this guy a fucking weirdo. Uh, his weirdness started when he realized fairly early on that he had an attraction to men. That's not the weird part. But then it grows to this fantasy where he's being molested when he sleeps or passes out like where he wants to be. He starts imagining himself uh, as two partners for a while. One is a dirty old pervert. The other, a young limp, uh, young limp body that the pervert takes advantage of. He'll stare at himself in the mirror and jerk off, imagine himself to be both these people. <laughs> Uh, but you know, uh, then when he gets older, you know, a lot of people don't want to just lie still and take part in this fantasy with him. So maybe he sets out to discover another way to achieve this, uh, fantasy, a way that is bloody, disgusting, requires creative storage options and comes to a surprising end. The very strange story of Dennis Nielsen, the, the Muswell Hill murderer, the man who has been called the UK's Jeffrey Dahmer next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Uh, first up, fun-loving sucker Rory Fitzpatrick would like to play a game. Uh, he writes, just wanted to share an awesome random moment with anyone who didn't see the Facebook post and try to get a fun thing started. Tuesday afternoon, I was leaving work when I noticed a strange bag on my windshield. Inside was a note saying how this was the first random sucker encounter this individual had had and how awesome it was. Also inside was a bunch of awesome goodies and two pens that I now use every day. The thing I'm wondering is, should random goodie bag sucker tag <laughs> be a thing? Cult, cult, cult. I love it, Rory. Uh, I hope this happens more. What, what a nice thing for someone to do to, to take the time to do that, right? Leave you a goodie bag, uh, which reminds me to thank Andy Rue. Andy, we got your goodie box at the Suck Dungeon. Lindsay, very impressed with the wooden sword you made. Holy shit. You have a lot of strange talents. Uh, if a goodie bag is too much for what Rory is saying, I bet a simple note of uh, hail Nimrod and have a great day placed under somebody's windshield would uh, put a big old smile on someone's face. Little things like that are so cool. Uh, glad you got to experience that, Rory, and kudos to whoever took the time to do that. Uh, next up, Ron Beckstrom. Might not understand that game I've been playing uh, or a game I've been playing. Maybe he's kidding. Uh, maybe not. When he writes, <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, Dan. Antonio Banderas is Spanish. How is it possible that you've incorporated his name into your, into your horrifically insensitive parody of Italians this many times and not been called out on that shit? You just did it again on the witchcraft suck. Antonio was born in Spain, lives in Spain, has a Spanish surname, has a Spanish first name, which is admittedly also an Italian first name and has generally played Spanish or Latino characters. 
Please, for the love of Nimrod, never stop using over-the-top accents. Hoingy boingy oofta oofta. But have a little goddamn respect for El Mariachi. And maybe use someone who's actually Italian next time you go full Mario. Your loyal fan, Ron. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ron. Uh, just so you know, I think I think you're kidding. But just so you know, just to be sure, I am aware that Antonio Banderas is Spanish. That's why I do it. I just love being that absurd, right? Obviously, the Italian parody or accent parody is, is over the top. But then to make it even more over the top, uh, it just really cracks me up to throw shit in like Antonio Banderas. Yeah, who, yeah, again, it's not Italian. Chicken Parmesan, Mariana, Lamborghini, Ciao Bella, Antonio Banderas. Uh, and now let's end on one regarding uh, uh, something way more serious. Law enforcement sack and a guy with a real heavy heart. Officer Nathan Gelhausen writes, then on July 3rd, 2023, Sergeant Heather Glenn was shot and killed in the line of duty. She was attempting to apprehend an individual for domestic battery. She was a shift partner and my supervisor for the last two years. She was a great cop and a great person. She was a hard person to get to know. And though we did not always see eye to eye on most things, we could always talk about time suck. She caught me listening to it one night while working on a report. And after that, we would ask each other if we listened to the latest one. She also told me that she enjoyed listening to Scared to Death as well. And we connected on that a few times. Both she and you changed my look on people in the world. Thank you, Dan. I was wondering if you could give Sergeant Heather Glenn a shout out and let her know that she can rest easy. Her brothers and sisters in blue will hold the line from here. Thank you, Dan. Nathan. Man, holy shit, Nathan. <sighs> I can't imagine what you're feeling. Yeah, of course. I can give uh, Sergeant Heather Glenn, a, a 20-year veteran of Indiana's Tell City Police Department, a huge shout-out. Uh, Nimrod and Lucifina Bojangles, they have to all be taking care of her somewhere while you and other officers you work with hold that blue line. Uh, thank you for doing what you do, Nathan. Thank you for letting me recognize Heather. What a badass. I know it does nothing to bring her back, but I'm glad at the very least other officers were able to return fire and kill the subject who did kill her in cold blood. Killed an officer responding to a domestic violence call. Someone trying to help someone else no longer be abused. Uh, a lot of people forget how you, uh, you all put your lives on the line every single fucking day. You go to work to make uh, society safer for the rest of us. Too many focus on the minority of people who abuse authority, right? The Sheriff Strider fuckheads of the world and not the majority who use their job for good. Right, good that makes society possible on a basic level. Right, the majority like Sergeant Heather Glenn, whose stories never get spun around in the 24-hour news cycle. Uh, Heather, one of 62 officers killed in the U.S. while on duty just in 2023, as of July 18th, when I looked up that stat. Rest in peace, Heather. I hope wherever you are, you can laugh and relax, and I do believe you're still out there somewhere. Next time, suckers, I needed that. We all did. Well, thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Scared to Death and Time Suck, each week. Secret Suck uh, as well for Space Lizards. Please don't be no good Peckerwood this week, Meat Sex. And don't be dumb enough to read politics into an accurate portrayal of history. What the fuck? Be better than that. And keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Okay, I feel like I should try and say some nice stuff about New Madrid, uh, Missouri. Um, it looks like they have a really nice, uh, they have a really nice uh, Dollar General based on reviews. Uh, they have a well-rated fertilizer spe- uh, supplier. Yeah, go to uh, go to Riverbend AG for all your crop poop needs. And they have another pizza place. I didn't even mention Pro Pizza. Emmett Shorter uh, loves it. He left them a five-star review on Google. They said extremely good pizza, maybe the best. Owner has very good values. Also, if you need your fortune told, <laughs> New Madrid, go to Lixie Baby, Spiritual World, 
at uh, 150 Happy Lane, which appears to also be a residence. Love and Rose left a five-star review on Google about this place. She wrote, <laughs> I own this, and I trying to fix Google again. <laughs> we are accepting online orders. I'm not sure how well online orders are doing since they don't have a website. It's tough times. It's tough times in New Madrid. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah. 